When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey gang, welcome back to another week of Ranching Reboot. This episode has been sponsored by our generous patrons over on Patreon.com. You can check that out at Patreon.com forward slash Red Hills Rancher or check out my link tree down in the show notes. Last week I had a really great episode with Jared Lehman over on his podcast, Herd Quitter. And I know that some of you folks are new here or some of you that are just joining us and haven't necessarily been through the whole back catalog. I wrote down a few that I want to recommend. So pause right here, go get a pen. Here's a few episodes that are kind of notable that are, I feel, a little bit underappreciated. Episode 5 with Ariel Greenwood. That was an absolute blast to do. That was one of the most memorable ones. Ariel's a wonderful person to talk to. Episode 8 with Beth Robinet was really good. She's got a second-generation holistic manager, and she runs Cowgirl Camp. That's pretty cool, too. Episode 14 with the Hoy family was a lot of fun to do. And when that episode aired, I was actually on their ranch on horseback learning about IMG from them. So that was pretty cool. We did a whole dairy mini series, episodes 19 through 22. We talked about, talked to hand operated dairies, robot milking dairies, grass fed dairies, and dairies that are still on the conventional side. And then we tackled another topic in several episodes that's on a lot of people's minds these days, and that's succession. Episode 7 and 26 with Dallas Mount, 24 with Jason Meadows, and 32 with John Locke. I think all are worth the time it'll take you to listen. That's enough of that. Here we go with this week's guest, Jared Lehman, host of the Herd Quitter podcast, joins me on Zoom. Jared, welcome to Ranching Reboot. How are you today? Hey, Brian. Thanks. Thanks. I'm doing well. I am uh, happy to be in the house. It got a little colder today after it was being 45 degrees yesterday, so I'm enjoying a day in the office, which is... Uh, Nice, because it ba- dropped back down to uh, mid-teens, I think. So, I just before I sat down to do this, I went outside and I walked around a little bit, you know, just mm-hmm. blood moving, because you know we're going to be sitting here for a little while. Yeah, and uh, it's seventy-two degrees. There's just Jeez. a nice breeze. The, <laughs> the sun is out. Birds are singing. It's a beautiful day. In twenty-four hours, it's going to be fifty degrees cooler. Wow. Wow. 50 degrees cooler. Okay. That's yeah. That's a bit of a drop. I think we're looking at 20 or 30 degrees warmer or cooler than it was yesterday, but that's, that's enough. I mean, I, I, it's right at this time of year where it's like, you can start to point towards spring, but you're not quite going to get too excited when it warms up a little bit because there's still a long time that could definitely get pretty nasty. So I'm not getting my hopes up too much when we had a 44 degree day yesterday, but it was just, it, it felt like spring and it was pretty nice. Well, down here in Southern Kansas, generally we get to the end of February and that's the, that's the last of your, mm. your cold weather. And it's sure. like according to the national weather service, we got about 90, 90 hours of cold coming up, like of below freezing, which okay. that's tolerable. We can deal with that, but hopefully that should be the last cold blast we've got to deal with. And as we get through March, 
Oh, we'll get a couple wild storms first part of March. Then somewhere around there, I'll release this episode and hopefully mm. we'll just get some good rains and, and carry yeah. through. <laughs> yeah. So this may be a dumb question I should maybe know. So if, if you're kind of March is already where it starts to get bad, when do people start, when do things start greening up? When do people start planting things like in, in your area? Uh, well, I'm not much of a farmer, so I'm kind of the, the terrible <laughs> guy to ask. We're, we've already been starting a bunch of our seeds indoors, like for early cool mm -hmm. season crop, you know, early cool season garden crops, things like that, like mm -hmm. uh, onions, broccolis, uh, things of that nature. But as far as the farmers around here, um, just north, I mean, there's a lot of irrigation and they're going to probably first two weeks of April uh, okay. or whenever the almanac tells them the last freeze <laughs> gone, they're going to yep. go out and they're going to start putting the corns and the beans in the dirt. Uh, wheat harvest, it's uh, planted in the fall here, grows all winter, generally harvested early June, late May is uh, about when harvest, when grain harvest starts down. Okay. Every once in a while, you get a couple of weirdos do some double crop milo. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes that fits in and cotton start to be big and and feeds starting to be big but that's all you know growing season stuff sure yeah and your grass is most mostly uh green like or warm season grasses right so that probably is later in the season when it really starts going or warm season grass is really going to make up the bulk of my pastures mm -hmm. um but it need the cool season grasses and i need the forbs to provide you know a lot of that nutritional punch that mm -hmm that the warm season grasses can't always provide, you know, everything is great to eat in the pasture for a couple of days, right? Yeah. Everything just demands to be eaten and it, for a very short window and, you know, finding those pastures that have a lot of that stuff and making sure the cows are there when that stuff should be palatable. Sometimes, yeah. sometimes it can be a challenge, but uh, sure. Yeah. That wasn't your question. So no, no, it's, it's interesting. I just, when we talk about weather, it blows my mind that you were 70 degrees here today, but I forget, you know, yeah, totally different worlds. So yeah, it's 30 when I left the house and I was in a hoodie. And by the time I got done checking water and checking cows and, you know, just checking on everything, it was, it was 69, 69, eight or nine. And I was about ready to shed the hoodie and turn the air conditioner on. Yeah. 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 It's, that's always cool. I love in the spring when you get outside and it's like, yeah, it, it's weird. In the spring, when it's 65 degrees, you feel like you'd be in shorts and a t-shirt. Fall, when it gets to 65 degrees, it's like bundled up in a... Where's my uh, snowsuit? Bibs and... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, where are you? Yeah. Yeah, I'm located in southeast Minnesota. So, the town is Goodhue, and it's right in between the Twin Cities and Rochester, which uh, nobody ever knows where Goodhue is. And if they've heard of Goodhue, it's, it's also in Goodhue County. So they always ask, where in Goodhue are you? I'm like, Goodhue. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, yeah, but where? <laughs> so yeah, Goodhue Town, Goodhue Township, Goodhue Town, Goodhue County, Southeast Minnesota. Okay. Yeah. I, I've actually, I've never visited Minnesota. The closest I've been would have been probably 25 years ago. No, it was over 25 years ago. I went went up to see some family when they had a place in Door County, Wisconsin. And okay. I would imagine that it's 100% not like that where you are. Yeah, it, it it's probably a little different than Wisconsin. They they've got little different terrains. We're we're in a, like kind of just rolling hills, uh, pretty darn productive ground. It's mostly crop country around me. Everything, if I look out, is almost entirely corn and soybeans. And if there's something green, it's alfalfa, and it's fed to you know dairy cows, kind of just alfalfa hay. Um, 
but yeah, not, not many people do get up here and, and the invitation is open to you, but I always invite people to say, if you're ever in Minnesota, swing by, but nobody's ever in Minnesota. <laughs> if they are, if they are, they're at uh, Mayo Clinic in Rochester and they're not in a visiting mood. So it, it's kind of like here. I always invite people. Yeah. If you're ever in a neighborhood, come by and see me. The trouble is <laughs> my neighborhood is so far off the beaten track. The only way to mm -hmm. get here is if you're actually going here, like not yeah. people actually just accidentally happen to be passing by yeah yeah no that's that's the way it is here but uh i don't know one of these days somebody will be like i happen to go on to minnesota and i'll be like blown away but there yeah it's not really a destination and i shouldn't say that because there are some beautiful places in minnesota especially when you get up north you got the boundary waters and um i've never actually been there myself some of the more unique things in minnesota i uh, haven't strayed too far from home for the most part so but would like to for sure I can appreciate that. There's a lot of cool things in Kansas. I haven't had the opportunity to see. <laughs> yeah. Someday we'll, we'll get out, we'll get around, but uh, we'll get there. For sure. So tell me yeah. about Jared. Did you, yeah. uh, did you grow up there in Minnesota, in Southeast Minnesota? Yeah. So right now I'm sitting in my office. That's the, the, the home farm that my grandpa had purchased in the nineties. And uh, if it's kind of hard to describe, I guess, here, but the house I grew up in was about just up the road. And there's kind of a diagonal line, about a half a mile a piece where I grew up in that house. My dad grew up in the house I'm in now. You go a half a mile straight uh, southwest is the house my grandpa grew up in. And another house just down the way is the house his father grew up in. So the Lumens have been here for, I don't even know how long. We're bad at some of that family history stuff, but we've been here for well over a century. And my brother's family, or my grandpa's brother's family runs the original homestead, the century farm. And we're on the farm my grandpa bought in the 1960s. And yeah, I, I guess I've always grown up in this area, but, um, and we can get into it whenever later or something too, but my dad actually started a grazing dairy about three or four miles down the road. And I grew up there till I was eight years old. And then we moved back here to the home farm, um, in Is the year 2000 or so. What's that? Is he still doing the grazing dairy? No, no. So he, he did that when, when he got home from school, there wasn't really room to come home to the home farm. And it's kind of how we got into grazing was, and I guess we'll go way back. Uh, my grandfather and his brother farmed together and they were for the time in like the sixties, seventies, eighties, pretty progressive farmers in like the seventies, they were milking close to 200 beef uh, dairy cows had like a hundred to 150 beef cows and uh, a few hundred sheep, and they were farming like a thousand acres, which is you know pretty big in this area. But it's very much conventional commodity agriculture. And we had a foreign exchange student, a lot of foreign exchange student labor to keep all those operations going. Um, and uh, a guy, Ed Bazette, uh, who uh, was from New Zealand, was one of our foreign exchange students, and wasn't afraid to tell my grandpa. He said you guys are 15 years behind everything we're doing over there in New Zealand. You got it all wrong. What are you doing? You're working so hard. What is, you know, just kind of told him how it was. And my grandpa, you know, was smart enough to not take offense to that, but say, maybe there's something to this and kind of encouraged my dad to go over to New Zealand and figure out what, what he was talking about. And so my dad went over to New Zealand and spent eight months or so there working on a dairy, a dairy, a grazing dairy, and then a a beef sheep and, and deer station actually. Um, and so then he came back, uh, and my grandpa wasn't, you know, there wasn't really room on the home farm. They had actually in the late 
eighties, uh, split my grandpa and his brother. So they weren't dairying anymore. And my grandpa was just kind of conventional beef and crops. And so my dad started, bought this dairy down the road, started his own grazing dairy. And then in the early, like in year 2000, my grandpa was ready to kind of back out of the management of the farm. And so dad sold the dairy and moved back to the home farm. So kind of a roundabout way of answering your question. Does he still dairy? No, no, he doesn't. He doesn't. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So back yeah. to your story. Yeah. Your house, yeah. You up, your house you grew up in, like I'm living in the house that I was conceived in basically. Oh. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I grew up there three miles down the road at the dairy. Uh, the time when we sold that, I, well, I remember bouncing in the back of the five wheeler up and down this Rocky Hill and bringing cattle down uh, and, and watching dad kind of do a little bit of grazing management and stuff there. I didn't really know what was happening, but he moved to the home farm here when I was then eight. And uh, it's, it's literally the house right up the road. Uh, it's a quarter mile up the road from the, the farm driveway, which is where I live now. I live where my grandpa lived. And so I grew up there. Um, I had two brothers, neither of them really ever showed much interest in the farm. Um, they, one would help when we needed it, like needed it, <laughs> but no more. The other would help a little more often when dad asked, but wasn't really interested. In, and then myself, I, I always loved the farm. Although it's kind of funny growing up, I hated the cattle and hated the livestock. Um, in the early 2000s, we, dad actually jumped into sheep and got a few hundred ewes and hated the sheep, hated the beef cattle. I just wanted to sit in a tractor and drive. <laughs> I wanted to make hay. I love haying, love crop farming, that stuff. Um, uh, and that's what I thought I would do. But I knew we were never really big enough to make a living doing conventional cropping. And 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 cattle was a big part and so we raised organic crops and cattle was a big part of that and um the rotation and so i bought some cows of my own and in, in the process of buying and managing some of my own cows i kind of fell in love with the cattle side of it so so how were the cows part of the organic farming operation yeah yeah so with organic crops i mean there's a few main challenges one is weed pressure uh, we have a lot of moisture and every new rainfall, you get a lot a new flush of weeds and a lot of weed pressure here. Um, and, and so to kind of part of the way of helping control weeds is to break up years out of crop production into some sort of a forage, either a hay or a, you know, pasture mix. And that kind of just sets back and kind of delay. It kind of just seems to set back weed pressure and stuff. So we would rotate acorn beans and then into some sort of a perennial for two to four years and then kind of back into crops. And so cattle were kind of gave us some sort of a, you know, way to generate income off of those off crop years. And the other big challenge in addition to weed control is, is fertility. And right. so by uh, having livestock on the farm, you can have manure access to manure and kind of utilize some of that. Although we did still import some extra manure and stuff too, but that was a probably, yeah, the big part was that rotation, getting it out of getting it out of crop production for a couple of years at a time. Importing manure is probably a smarter idea than importing liquid nitrogen. Yeah. Uh, and you're touching on something that, you know, it, it's pretty important to not overlook is what cattle can provide in, in terms of fertility for the big three nutrients, nitrogen, potassium, phosphorus, any of carbon, just by having their presence out on the landscape. My friend Macaulay Kincaid helped me with some numbers uh, a couple of years ago. Um, 
I went through and grabbed a couple different dairy study, you know, studies from land grant universities about what manure, how it broke down, like nitrogen, mm -hmm. carbon, potassium, and what was what, and what fertility effect that had when it was applied on a field. Now, granted, they were kind of taking, um, you know, your, your typical dairy situation where you've got a big liquid pit where everything goes, which we can yeah. both agree that's not how things work in the real world. But I think some of the math carries over as far as the actual volumes of NPK and carbon that are getting transported back out. So the calculations that I came to, if you're if you had a paddock stocked at approximately 50,000 pounds per acre of cows for 24 hours, you're going to add about $50 worth of synthetic fertility to that pasture. Now, granted, these are all pre-COVID costs. You know, th these numbers are three, like two, three years old. So they're kind yeah. of basically pre-COVID. Yeah. You can imagine sure. how, how all so that's totaling up the value. It's so you were just, you were calculating the total NP and K that you got out of the manure that those cattle deposited and equating it to a value based on chemical, you know, kind of synthetic fertilizers is what you're saying you were doing. Right. Right. Yeah. It's just, okay. This much NPK carbon from the, from mm -hmm. the cows. Yeah. What would it cost to bring the equivalent yeah. quantity of synthetic fertilizer and apply it. And the cost was, I mean, it was 50 plus. Yeah. Wow. Acre. <laughs> so, no, that that's cool. Yeah. yeah. The fertility is definitely worth something. Yeah. Yeah. And, and for sure we saw that. I mean, and, and like, yeah, it was neat. Cause I remember one year in particular, we had this field that was just up the way and it had been in pasture for, I don't know, eight years, 10 years, significantly longer than the average rotation. And it was weed we, when we put it back into crops, which now I talk about this and it makes me sad to think of taking this eight or 10 year established pasture and filling it up and putting it back into crops. So it, 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 it's hard to even think about that, but we did. And it was the highest yielding field. We had a custom combiner come out and said, this should be on the cover of organic magazine or whatever he said. He was weed free, extremely high yield and stuff. And so you're right. It was neat to see that like that the impact that grazing for many years can have on productivity, you know, it, it, not that you now, like I say, it makes me sad to think about just tearing it all up and wasting that just to go back and get some good yielding corn. <laughs> so, but, uh, but it was cool to see. But it was informational and educational. I mean, you learned something. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and, uh, you know, I mean, it's kind of a challenge and in, in our area, the land, I grew up being told you need to farm, you need a thousand acres per full-time family member to farm here. And now we're running like 700 acres, you know, back then we were 500 acres or so. And we had myself and my dad and for a while there, my grandpa as well, you know, two to three generations farming and running, you know, trying to make a living off of this farm. And so, you know, organic crops has always been a big part of our, you know, our business's financial viability uh, because, organic crop production is quite lucrative uh, premium it can sure. generate yeah it's, it's a premium product and it generates a pretty good premium and or profit per acre and so you know that's that's been a big part of our farm story and, and getting us to where we are today and and stuff so you know we look back at it you know as we've learned more about and we still do some we've been moving more and more towards pasture but uh we still do some uh, but looking back at it as we learn more and more about soil health and we're not sure how much progress we made, if any, at the soil. And we were doing it as, as best as we could as far as organic cropping, trying to 
build soils. We were doing it as best we could, but uh, it's still, we're not sure how much progress we made, but it was a, it was a big part of our financial, you know, kind of thing. And in the holistic context, anyway, when we're considering soil health and financial viability and lifestyle, it was a big part of that financial kind of piece. And I, I would argue you were improving the soil health. It, and maybe, oh gosh, I just painted myself into a corner. <laughs> yeah. You you proved by an experiment, by an extractive experiment of corn, that the high density grazing and establishing a perennial pasture and then breaking it back out for a crop, you've proved that that works. You've yeah. proved that it's a low cost way to add fertility. It's a, it's a way to get a really great crop. It just requires more creativity and more management. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good point. Like, I don't know if we did a huge amount of destruction or anything and stuff, but I do think, you know, the way we managed it did definitely probably make some improvements too. And I had a conversation with um, Lance Gunderson. Uh, he's the, so, yeah, yeah. He's uh, in Nebraska. They're what is Regen Labs, Regen Ag Labs, something like that. Regen Ag Lab. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Lincoln, he was kind of talking about uh, the destruction or the destructivity. What <laughs> I don't even know what the word, the destructiveness of tillage. And uh, he kind of talked about, you know, yeah, it's not great. And if you can avoid it, great. Uh, that's that's fantastic. But when you really think about the ability of biology and a healthy functioning system to recover from tillage, it can do it pretty quickly, he talked about. And, and so we wanted to minimize tillage as much as possible. And there's guys doing it where there's very little tillage. And we probably did it more than we should. And we hadn't figured it out as well as some folks do. But even if you have to, for weed control or something, use a little bit of tillage occasionally. He wasn't too worried. He thought that might be better than, for example, a, a no-till heavy chemical and synthetic system that, you know, it, it's, so it's, I don't know, in a world where it's pretty tough to have perfection. I mean, the, in, a, in an ideal world, it's, it's a perennial pasture mix and grazing and stuff. But the challenge with that up here is winter. <laughs> we can't crazy around and that gets really expensive uh, to feed cattle through the winter. So there's... You can't Not even stockpile before. forage in a pasture for them. Um, we can, and we have. Uh, we the most most years the, the issue is that the snow falls and, and it kind of we have a couple warm days and then it freezes and it kind of ices over. Um, we've that, that's not ideal for cows trying to find groceries. It's not. Yeah, it's not. It's been a struggle. We've for the last kind of six or seven years now since I uh, I got more involved in, and got home on the farm and stuff. We've been really trying to figure out how do we graze later. We, dad and I went and did the numbers on what it actually cost us to feed hay. And I'm like embarrassed almost to say this, like what our costs were, because it was so not sustainable. Like you don't we have just, to say didn't it. even do it. You don't yeah. have to say it. It's well, fine. I mean, it was, it was just a not sustainable price that we were paying when you include, when we, especially when you include opportunity costs, we were feeding what was really good, high quality organic alfalfa hay that we could have sold to an organic dairy for 200, 250 bucks a ton to beef cows. <laughs> and feed, you know, so I mean, it worked out to several dollars per day. And we're like, well, gosh, we just need to reduce our winter feed costs. We, we, we need to do this. Um, and so we started with a lot of sorghum sedan plantings is the big kind of thing we did. And, and even that got buried under snow and ice where 
in the, if we grazed it August, September, November, even in December, we were getting 180 plus cow days per acre out of the sorghum. And when it got buried under snow in February, we were getting 30 cow days per acre and the rest they couldn't access and they were going backwards in body condition pretty quick. And so when you have 200 to $300 an acre land rent tied up in something that gets you 30, 30 cow days per acre, it just is a, that's pretty expensive too. And so, um, for winter, we've kind of actually gone to a couple of things, grazing corn, uh, corn stalks is the main one. And we send, send our corn, our, our cows are actually down in Southeast Nebraska, grazing corn stalks down there. And our yearlings are grazing, they've grazed corn stalks 10 miles away. And the last three years we've gotten till January 20th or later, uh, grazing corn stalks up here. So if that, I don't know if that's consistent, that's three years in a row of trials that we've been able to get that late, but, uh, it's way better than most folks starting to feed in end of October. <laughs> are you still, so when they're out on stocks, you're still having to feed, right? No, they're just grazing straight stocks. No hay, no protein, nothing. They just salt and mineral grazing stocks through snow and ice as deep as they, or as long as they can. And yeah, yeah, that's that it's the best we can do to push them hard. Yeah. We, we've been trying to breed the tough ones. So breed the tough ones. So I want to, we'll circle back to that. I still haven't finished hearing the story of how Jared came to the farm. Sure. The ranch. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, uh, gosh, we're, well, I was, yeah. So as a kid, I was always the one that wanted to help on the farm, uh, for sure. Um, spent most every day after school and summers all summer out working. My brothers had off farm jobs and I think it was probably a blessing for some reason when I got my driver's license, even though there was plenty of work to do on the farm, I applied at 11 different places and not one called me back. So I don't know. I have a feeling my dad called them all and said, you better not hire my son because I need him here or something, but I didn't get a job and I ended up just working on the farm. Um, and then went to school at the university of Minnesota, uh, in the summers I had summer internships, but close to home so I could farm and weekends and, uh, I would come home and, and farm uh from school and stuff so i was always pretty involved but uh graduated and came right home uh, just when i graduated came right back which i still am not sure if that was the best thing or not you know my dad had that opportunity to go to new zealand and i was wondering if i maybe missed out on that opportunity and so actually in 2020 uh when we kind of were deciding to more actively switch out of cropping towards more pasture we realized it really doesn't take any more labor to move you know 250 cows than it did 150 cows and we have a lot less cropping to do and dad wasn't going to leave. So I actually took a job working for the sustainable farming association as well. So I still farm after work and weekends and, and stuff, but I, that's been kind of my New Zealand trip is it's been a fantastic opportunity to go out and meet farmers all around the state and learn how other people are doing things. And yeah, that's been good, but yeah, went to school and came right home after I graduated. Nobody's going to judge you for sitting in, in a tractor. Nobody's yeah. for farming. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean it, well, it's not even that it's bad. We, we both prefer cattle now. It's weird. Cause I, like I said, growing up, I loved sitting in the tractor, listening to the radio. Now it bores me to death. Like I, all I want to do is be out moving cattle and, you know, out in the cattle with the, or out in the pasture with cows and stuff. That's what we both enjoy. Neither of us are mechanical and probably part of the thing that changed when I came home, it was nice when I was in high school, if something broke down, 
I'd be like, uh, Hey dad, call him up, you know, Hey dad, uh, tractor broke. Uh, I'm going to head into town with the guys. Uh, let me know when it's ready and I'll come back and plant <laughs> or whatever, you know? And, and today, uh, Hey dad, something broke. He's like, all right, well, I'm overdoing this. You better figure it out. Let me know when you got it fixed or something. It's like, huh, this way to those calls go changed. the other way. And it's dad being like, Oh, Hey, this broke. I don't know what happened. I'm going to, yeah. <laughs> good luck. That- that has that's happened as well yep no doubt <laughs> yeah get used so, to yeah. it yeah <laughs> yeah no I, I have no problem with farmers by no means i'm surrounded by almost all of my friends here are regular like, crop farmers i i think there's even ways to really build soil in crop farming and i've seen people do amazing things with cover crops and just corn and soybeans but adding cover crops and no-till in the right ways it's tremendous what people can do. So I have nothing against farming. I just realized that's not really what I want to do. Yeah. And you know, that, that kind of brings to mind a lot of the things that I say on this podcast and that, you know, some of my guests talk about make it sound like we're really negative on commodity crop farming. (laughs) Well, we kind of are, but there's still a place for it. I mean, Mm -hmm. the soils that are just North of me where it gets into irrigated country that, that goes through most of Kansas and up into Nebraska and west into Colorado, down through the panhandles, there is so much potential to heal so many acres of soil that that have been mm-hmm. degraded by this monoculture agriculture. It's like, you know, there's a lot of programs, you know, government programs, and like uh, the one I'm thinking of is the uh, Lesser Prairie Chicken uh, Habitat Conservation. Mm-hmm. And there's a bunch of wind farms north of me. They had to build a bunch of big power lines to get the power out. And this was 14 years ago. The guy was coming out to site the power lines. And he's like, well, we don't want to put them through the farm ground because that's going to interrupt the farmers. And that'll be in the way of the wind turbines. We want to put them out here through this place. And we're like, well, well, hold up. You know, this (laughs) this is critical prairie chicken habitat. It's like some of the last. Yeah. And we got them, we got them to agree, like, to designate it as a as a listed bird that since come off but the good part was they moved a power line i mean mm-hmm. it's not on the ranch i can still see it from the house i can see it from <laughs> the ranch but the whole ridge north of me and i can see probably 40 miles of it stretching across the horizon it's just wind turbines wow 100 wind turbines and we don't have any down here and i'm kind of grateful for it because yeah And where I was leading to with that is we have this wonderful bird, the lesser prairie chicken, and it's, it's really an amazing bird. I mean, native prairie grouse to this part of the world. And we've pushed it into this marginal, you know, in this incredibly marginal habitat. I mean, I'll admit that right now, my ranch is, and always has been marginal habitat for that bird. Hmm the big flat open farm ground, the big open areas that are up north of me that are currently under, you know, either a two or three crop oscillation or rotation or growing the, the most soil destructive crop that can be possibly planted here. That's where all the prime prairie chicken habitat is. That's where all the prime prairie that, land is. What's the, why is that? What, why is your habitat not prairie chicken habitat, but up there it's like, what's the difference in they like big flat open spaces where they can see forever. They don't like the canyons sure. and the brush where the cow, where the coyotes can sneak up on them. Sure. Okay. They like to have a big open area that's kind of grazed a little bit flat 
mm-hmm. to do their mating dance called uh, booming. Um, it's pretty okay. cool. Like Native American tribes like have prairie chicken dance that's modeled after the huh. actual prairie chicken dance. So yeah. that's that's pretty neat. That uh, is neat. But then they also need, you know, they also need some tallish cover nearby. You know, and they need okay. they need a varied amount of habitat. Like you see in the picture behind me, you know, the grass is mm-hmm. under my cow's bellies. Yeah. It's good nesting habitat, but it's not always good feeding or breeding habitat. So you have to have kind of a good sure. you have to have the right okay. of habitat, is what I'm saying. That makes sense. Because that's when I see what's behind you. Like obviously nobody listening can see what's behind you. That I imagine when I see that it looks like beautiful, some sort of bird habitat, kind of cover from wildlife protect wildlife protection and stuff. That's what I would imagine. But I've never been you know, a wildlife expert by any means. So I, I guess I'm not a wildlife expert in the sense that I just observe wildlife constantly when I'm out on the ranch and occasionally mm-hmm. I visit with a couple people that are, that are a lot smarter than me. Uh, yeah. But, you know, we're, speaking of what's going on in the video, if you want to see the video and what we're actually talking about in our backgrounds, you're going to have to go to my Patreon and sign up for Patreon to get the unedited versions of the videos. So that's I didn't know we were on video. That was good. That's good to know. I didn't really, I, uh, I would have, uh, I don't know, worn a nicer shirt or something. <laughs> oh, you're fine. You're fine. Yeah. They come here for the content, not, not how pretty I am. <laughs> that's good. For sure. And if they came that's here good. for how pretty I am, I would have zero fans. I that's that beard. That's what they're coming to see. Yeah. Beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, so circling back you're you're back on the farm, uh, but what year was that that you came back to the farm? You said just a couple of years was, ago. It's spring of 2015. I got back. I graduated college. Yep. Yep. Spring of 2015. Okay. Mm-hmm. So what the operation look like then versus what it looks like now? Yeah. So at that time, we had just uh, picked up another farm. We were running about 600 acres and probably 250 to 350, somewhere in there, acres of row crops a year, or probably 300 250 to 300 acres of row crops a year of organic corn, sweet corn, uh, field corn, sweet corn, black edible beans and soybeans um, are the main crops that we raise and stuff. And the rest was either alfalfa, hay, kind of in the rotation or perennial pastures. Uh, We had really just two farms that we could graze on. One was the home farm and a farm that we'd picked up in 2014 that we had just put fence around. And the other farms, we rented two other farms that were they didn't have fence, didn't have water infrastructure, nothing like that. Uh, and so, yeah, the cropping was big part of it. And we were still kind of at that time had really no intentions of changing out of the cropping, uh, system. It was a big part of it, but it was, but within a couple of years, actually that fall of 2015 that I graduated, my grandpa had, he was still up until that point day, every day, sun up till sundown out there working. Uh, and so we had three of us and, and the workload was high and we had enough people and, and up until, and, and then that fall of 2015, my grandpa had a stroke and he moved into town to an assisted living home and, and stuff. And at that point, uh, the following that fall and the following summer things, I mean, it was exhausting, uh, just dad and me doing all this and we were working like crazy and, and that's the way my grandpa and my dad had grown up and I had grown up that way too. And. I knew that, but I also knew that I didn't want that to be my life either. And so we kind of realized we wanted something to change lifestyle wise, in addition to the, uh, 
you know, soil health. And when I got home, I, I went to everything that I could get to as far as conferences and conventions and things to learn. And so soil health was something I was learning a lot about. Um, and just seemed to, yeah, make sense that we needed to, we needed to change something. <laughs> Who's your favorite soil health guru? Oh gosh. That's a good question. Looking over at my bookshelf for, <laughs> for helps <laughs> for help. Uh, Dirt to Soil is always my favorite book. Gabe Brown, uh, my favorite book until I read uh, the the Turnaround, actually, the uh, by Dave Pratt, uh, the the book they send out with the the school that shall not be named, I believe, is what you refer to it as. Uh, but uh, You're not even yeah, gonna let that... me hit the button. I was ready. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I uh, I apologize for that. You got a beeper or something like that, or a ding, a bell. Yeah, for any the ranching for profit said... school. There we go. Nice. that's great um yeah that book is now my new favorite but the gabe Gabe brown's book and what he's done in his uh in his ranch in north dakota is so cool and it it always while it's a totally different environment it was cool in that it was both crops and livestock it wasn't just a grazing story and it wasn't just a cropping story it was similar to our story and that it had both and that he used them integrated them so that was kind of relevant and and spoke to me, I guess, more than some stories, you know, people who uh, are all one and, and that's just not our context. Um, But no, he was a, he was a big one um, for sure. For sure. Yeah. And Jason Roundtree, actually that fall, I, I, my mom's family is from Michigan. And so my dad sent me, he told me the grass fed exchange is having a conference out in uh, uh, Michigan at Michigan state university. And uh, so I went out there and stayed with my grandpa uh, out there and, and went to the grass fed exchange that Jason Roundtree in Michigan State was hosting. And I've always thought what they're doing is it's probably the closest to our environment as far as high moisture, high snowfall, productive grounds, um, but doing trying to run a low input grazing system. So they they were also people that I kind of looked up to as far as uh, kind of pioneers in this this world of trying to make grass work on productive grass or productive lands and stuff in a in a northern wet environment. Are you going to go to grass fed exchange this year? I think it's down in Fort Worth. It's in May, isn't it? Yeah. It's like the third. It seems to me like, it seems like a ridiculous time to plan a grazing conference like that. I mean, no, I'm not going to make it. <laughs> I, I'm going to try to be there. The okay. young man I had working with me last summer, uh, mm-hmm. we finishing his first year at college and be starting summer break about 10 days before I got to leave. Okay. Of that. So I'll have are you calving in is that when are you calving in when do you calve i guess uh i should start in two weeks and i've been saying okay. for about three weeks but uh okay. <laughs> first of may like i think around the fourth or sixth of may is when i should have my first calf march or may may march did i say may you said may but you also said two or three weeks so i was confused yeah we're <laughs> supposed to start at the beginning of march like sometime fourth okay. and the sixth i think uh by the calendar but I think we both know that mother nature and genetics can play their own tricks. So I'm expecting a couple early ones. Yeah. yeah. Literally today because the, the cold, the cold is coming. So yeah. I'll be yeah. shocked if I make it sure. to cold snap and don't have some early calves. Okay. So may for like that, that conference then may won't be too bad. Most of your calves should be on the ground and things should be in a little bit more of a routine or. Uh, th- things never stop being on a routine. We calve on the moon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, see, yeah. I'm I'm that weirdo. I run everything in one big beautiful mess. Okay, oh, I love that. 
in the picture behind me, you'll see everything from a 16 year old longhorn cow over where'd she go? Now she's hiding 14 or 16 year old longhorn cow. Like her horns are way too wide to even get down my alley, much less preg check as cheap yeah. water. She looks cool. She's here, but I've <laughs> yeah. got everything from her down to one-year-olds mm-hmm. all running in the same big, beautiful mess. Got last year's calves, two years ago's calves and every cow that I've bought running in one big, beautiful mess. There's, uh, yeah. there's three steers out there. There's two calves at each, one steer calf at each generation. And then I've got big Steve. He's my big longhorn, big longhorn. I mean, if you yeah. don't have some, if you don't have a longhorn for pasture art, are you really a rancher? <laughs> <laughs> we are not then. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. that's okay I, I i didn't mean that <laughs> no i love it i love it that's that's awesome i i think that's so cool hmm. so yeah things just stay on a big beautiful mess and uh i don't stop rotating when i start calving okay so you know, we're not going very far like you know we're going yeah. across the fence line and a lot of times you know that's that's being out there paying attention to behavior like yeah you know if you get them up and you're moving them all slow and you're paying attention to making sure they get paired and you've got good maternal cattle that aren't running off and leaving their calves and just let them go at their pace, it works great. But if you try to move them with the feed truck, Mm -hmm. that's when they just run off and leave their calf. Sure. And you suck them through a gate, you put them in another pasture, you feed them. And then, you know, they get, they get done with this, you know, massive sugar high that they've been on because you fed them. Mm-hmm. And then they suddenly, they go like, oh crap, where's my where's calf? My calf? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Having the cattle content and paired up and moving them at their own pace. I've uh, been doing, been calving on the move for years and it's never been an issue. How often do you move them? Uh, is it the same as when you're calving as when you're not then? Uh, right now we're like every five to seven days or so. Okay. Uh, Cause sure. I'm lightly stocked and we're in big paddocks. Um, mm-hmm. Just trying to make sure we've got plenty of rest going back in. We're going to stock back up around the first of may first of may to first of june just depend on what part of the ranch we're stocking um we're going to stock back up a little bit but not get too aggressive because i'm staring down the double barrel shotgun of like a record drought that's just been spreading yeah. away for two years so i've been yeah. planning for it and uh i think i'm mm-hmm. ready okay uh that i gosh i could ask you a million questions <laughs> I, i'm fascinated by your environment and everything and, and stuff so i i like to do that yeah well i want to hear about your cows yeah yeah no i can tell you about them um our cows have changed from when my grandpa was running the farm he he had the old uh what like the white face simmentals like the big ones tall ones and stuff like that and he kind of saw that that the wasn't made really everybody want to buy low birth weight bulls yeah 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 uh, and he just he, my grandpa, he was a progressive guy, kind of, you know, at the time when he was early and stuff, he was running, you know, acres and farm that was very advanced and stuff. And he, he saw that that Simmental market with the type of cattle he, he had wasn't really the direction that made a lot of sense. And everybody and their brother was selling registered Angus uh, and stuff. So he went with Red Angus, which turned out to be kind of a good decision for us. So we're, we're 100% registered Red Angus cattle um, is the, the breed we're running. And, uh, my dad, when he kind of took over, um, really after that New Zealand experience was a, a grass-based kind of a guy. And so he wasn't really interested in the big, you know, type of cattle and he was raising, um, 
he was breeding for kind of a more grass-based type animal himself. And we would, we'd always been even back into the Simmentals selling a few head off the farm, kind of in bulls as seed stock. Um, grandpa would always sell a few bulls and dad, you know, sold a, a few bulls and stuff too. And so uh, we've been raising red Angus for over 20 years, 20, 25, 30 years. And for at least the last 20 to 25 now or so, it's been grass-based genetics uh, and kind of breeding for that as long as dad's um, been around. Yeah. Well, you made a remark about breeding the tough ones. Yeah. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So, and I, I we, uh, we raise cattle for for feral cattle company is kind of who we raise bulls for and stuff and and he's kind of who we really got that out of i mean it's all about low input and and up here it's it, it up here the summer forages are pretty high quality i mean we've got good lush green grass year round and stuff like that and so it's kind of almost a challenge to breed tough cattle uh, especially if you feed all winter long right because they're they're getting good grass all summer and, and good, you know, feed all winter and stuff. And for, so that, that's what we had been doing for a while. And so really to, we, we want cattle that can survive on what our environment produces. We don't want to baby them. We, we've, we, we don't want to um, stick money into them and we want to see the cattle that survive. And we have a no excuses policy where if they don't get bred back, if they, you know, have an issue and, and they come up open, even if they were our favorite cow the year before they're gone. And, I always like what kid had said about, you know, you might get rid of a couple good cows that way, but you'll for sure get rid of every single bad cow. And so that's kind of been our philosophy is just pull out the, you know, pull out the, the inputs, pull out the supplements and, and kind of the, the toughest we, way we found out found to raise our cattle now has been like kind of corn stocks. I don't know how we really get, we can't it, kind of evaluating our environment. What do we have an abundance of? We have a lot of corn production around here. The problem is most people want to turn it black before the ground freezes, but we found one individual who uh, is a no-tiller and saw the advantage of having livestock on their farm. And so we've been working with him now for the last four or five years and grazing animals out on his corn stalks and getting, like I mentioned, until January 20th. And that was great, but we wanted to go longer than that even. So we sent cows. This is the second winter trying to send some cows down to Nebraska to graze corn stalks there. And we don't supplement them with any protein they don't get any hay it's just what they can grab and what they can eat and what they can find is what they get and that trial run down to nebraska was kind of the big question mark will they after being on corn stocks from end of october until the first week in march and then hopping on a trailer and riding 500 miles home and we fed them when they got home two-year-old rye kind of just not nothing special at all what was going to happen? <laughs> would they throw a bunch of calves, you know, aboard a bunch of calves and would they get bred back? But we didn't lose a single calf and we had a 95% breed back on those cows. We were blown away. So, I mean, we were really happy that things seemed to be they were working, I guess. One of these days, I will get all the crap out of my herd and have those <laughs> conception rates. Someday I'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I don't feed, you know, I, I try not to, and I really didn't want to. So last winter I used like a pretty, I consider it a high quality tub. I used cattle active. Uh, mm. I think it was a 30% tub with some probiotic in it and mm. went through a lot of it. Was it a good product? Yeah. 
Well, mm -hmm. when we got into this spring, you know, I made my winter, I, I want to try to get my winter protein decision made in the spring. Like, yeah, make sure I have that source secure to make sure I have that coming, whether it's, you know, contract an alfalfa, making sure I've got blocks or cubes, whatever. I mean, mm -hmm. I think it, it pays to be proactive and, and get that stuff secured ahead of time because you know, you're going to need it. Mm -hmm. So I kind of looked at the cost of the tubs and talked it over with my partner that uh, we were co-mingled. We co-mingled for over 270 days with these cows. Wow. Okay. Um, it started to get dry and he wanted to feed them a little more aggressively than I was feeding mine. So he took them home and I said, okay, that that's just that many less days. I got to go. I got to go beat my feed truck up and feed everything. So yeah, um, we're down to feeding uh, about eight pounds per head of 20% alfalfa every third day. Okay. Other than okay. that, you got to live on native range. I even took the salt away yeah. from 60 days ago. Okay. Yeah, no, that's not bad at all. And that's what, well, I was just talking to somebody earlier today, actually from Oklahoma, and he kind of saw, I mean, that was the big shift in his mindset when he moved down there. For, he moved from Ohio to Oklahoma, actually, and um, and talked about that surprise of trying to graze stockpiled warm season grasses and how that's very different than stockpiling cool season grasses. <laughs> and there almost needs to be some sort of a supplement. And well, I'm, and I, I, I have no idea, but I was curious how the quality, do you have any idea how the quality of warm season grasses compare to like sorg or uh, corn stalks? Cause that is technically a warm season grass, but technically yes, corn is a grass. I have a hard time seeing corn as a real grass because of how much it's been manipulated. Yeah, man. And I'm not talking GMO. I'm talking crossbreeding, interbreeding, hybridizing it. Mm -hmm. It's the corn we grow. Yes, it is technically a grass and it fits into that family. But I would argue that it's just so far removed from anything yeah. resembling a wild plant that mm -hmm. it's kind of something different. You know, we've bred it yeah. and engineered it to, you know, to grab all these sugars and st store all these sugars everywhere in the plant, especially in the kernel. And yeah. that's why they can live on corn stalks for longer is because mm -hmm. there are some cured sugars in there in with the dry matter. Yeah. And that makes sense. I, I would, that's kind of what I was wondering. I mean, a lot of this is bred for even corn silage, like the whole plant, not just the kernel and stuff is, is bred for, you know, feed quality. So I imagine that's not all going to go away when it goes dormant. So the analog is for me is making sure that I have a chance. I give my warm season grasses a chance to complete stage four of growth, which is putting mm -hmm. up the big stem and seed head. I mean, I love going out and walking through chest high Indian grass. I mean, just in mid September, mid September, mm -hmm. when the Indian grass is in full bloom is one of my favorite times of the year. And if you turn cattle in, there's about a, a three, almost a four week period where they will run in and they will strip those seeds out of that Indian grass seed head first. That's the first thing they go really? for pasture. Yeah. Huh. I mean, you're talking a tiny little seed and they got to get a lot of them, but those yeah. cows know there's something in there that they want. Just like we see them eating all kinds of weird shit, like uh, yucca blooms, you know, mm -hmm. like, 
I, I had a group that would go into the Sandhill plum thickets and ignore the leaves and eat the green ones, only the green ones, not the red ripe ones. Tell me yeah. why. <laughs> well, I mean, that's what, I, and I'm not finished it yet. It's sitting right behind me, the Fred Provenza book, Nourishment. Have you read that? No, I haven't. I should. Okay. Hopefully, I, he's a future guest on the Ranching Reboot podcast, Fred. Well, I hope to get him on mine too. So, yeah, it's he's got a, It's incredible what he does. I mean, I feel bad. I, I always laugh because I imagine he had to have some sort of a grad student or something do this research. But he talks in the one book about uh, they followed around a cow. Like I, I'm what I'm imagining, and I don't know if this is exactly how it happened. Was he said, "All right, grad student, you you're following Bessie." You're following, you know, old Betsy or whatever, follow them every, you know, all throughout the day. And every time they take a bite, try and, you know, essentially they would try and grab the same bite and represent what they got. And then they ended up taking that and doing a nutritional test on what that cow had eaten based on what they kind of grabbed. And they found that that cow had picked like the perfect ration. I mean, it was incredible. <laughs> I feel bad for that grad student, but it was pretty neat to read. So I had a heard that it was down on the south end of the ranch back in the spring moved him into a paddock that i knew had really great cool season grass down around this little pit pond and and in the creek that comes out of it and i knew where there's some other really good stuff up this draw so we moved him in made a sweep made sure we had them all cleaned out of the other ones grabbed middle toes moved them over and then i looked saw where the cattle were half of them were in a corner they were over in the southeast corner where there wasn't a whole lot of grass. And I'm thinking, there shouldn't be anything up there. Why are they up there? So he jumped in the gator and buzzed over there and looked. Well, they were eating this clover that was about six inches tall that I couldn't see through the grass. So real quick, like I grabbed a big old handful of it, ran out the gate and, you know, got my little, uh, my little plant smasher and smashed it down, got the <laughs> juice to put on my bricks meter. And I yeah. looked, 26 bricks. Wow. No <laughs> wonder awesome. they wanted to go over to that corner of the pasture, yeah. that clover. Now, these cows had never been on the ranch before. How did they know it was there? And how did they <laughs> get there within five minutes after being moved into that pasture? <laughs> oh, that's incredible. What have, is, I'm curious, what are your bricks typically in, in, on your natives in that region? Okay, so I measure, I like to measure my bricks around 2 p.m. during yep. the summer. Peak, you know, that's around peak photosynthesis. That's close to when you're going to get your peak sugars. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we can argue about the pennies and like what time <laughs> was solar maximum or when was peak yeah. photosynthesis? You know what? Yeah. Two o'clock is good enough for my work. Yeah. So I try to measure, you know, if I'm going to make a serious measurement, I try to look at it at two o'clock. Sure. And most of the year, you know, a lot of my warm season grasses, they're staying down in the, in the three, four, five range. But when they're really good to eat, when I notice the cattle are really selecting them, those things are up in the six to eight range. Hmm. So I had a lot of, I had a, uh, like just after we'd get a little bit of moisture, get a little flush of growth, one day I could get six mm -hmm. and the next day go to the same area on the same plants and barely get four. Interesting. Huh? So our native, like native plants are definitely not going to be as sweet as anything we're going to plant yeah and bricks directly correlates to growth you know I, doug ferguson says mm -hmm. that i think uh Zethman says that uh yeah. you know for the five four to five range you're going to put on pound pound a half a day you get up around mm -hmm. six and it's closer to two you get up like 
16 bricks, you're putting on four pounds a day. I mean, you're, you're really yeah, like something. feedlot ration. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Huh. I wonder what feedlot ration would be if you ground it up and put it on a bricks meter. Yeah. yeah. It'd be worth trying. I'd be curious. Be pretty high. <laughs> That'd be really high. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's interesting. And I, I, I've always wondered, I've heard, maybe I don't know what kind of region you're, you're in and stuff, but some of that Western, no, that's more short grass, I guess. That's got the punch. It's supposed to just have this punch people talk about. I, I don't really know. Ours is pretty high water, protein mix and stuff, but that more warm season or Western grasses are just, they got this punch that everybody talks about that gets cattle growing like crazy. Is that a bricks thing or something else in the grass? Uh, it, it's a, it's a bricks thing and it's a growth phase thing. So sometimes you got to kind of consider the source, right? You know, mm-hmm. what are yeah. these guys managing? Like they're saying that this, you know, just short grass has a lot of punch on it and put a lot of weight on, you know, yeah. look at their pasture. And if it all looks like a pool table, well, <laughs> you know, the old saying, if the only tool you have is a hammer. Every problem looks like a nail, mm-hmm. you know? I think there's a lot of guys that think that something is good grass when they've never really seen what good grass is. Yeah. Yeah. You know, no, I'm sure that's true. Yeah. I, yeah. I've driven to the Western end of the state several times, you know, out to Denver, out to Albuquerque. And it always used to blow my mind where I'd hear people from just a few miles West of me say, Oh, well, Alexander, we can't grow that blue stem here. We can't grow that Indian grass <laughs> here. This is short grass prairie. You're just right on the edge. And I believed it until you drive all the way out to like Ulysses or Colby or, or Holly, Colorado, and you see fucking big blue stem and Indian grass growing six foot tall in the ditches. Yeah. Pasture next door is grazed to an inch high. (laughs) Like, yeah, let's consider the source here. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a, well, that's, that's relevant with so much right there, right? <laughs> how much are people actually looking act- actively at what they're doing and how that impacts what they're used to? I mean, gosh, it's and, an even more fun comparison to do down the ditch. Like if you've got places that are broke up between, you know, a mile of pasture and then some row crop ground, mm-hmm. ride down that stretch of road and look at what the ditches look like next to that pasture. You mm-hmm. might have some fairly healthy talk. Well, I could say healthy. You'll see some taller grasses. You'll see some bigger plants. You'll see probably less weeds. Yeah. By that farm field, it's either going to be kind of full of one weed or full of one really crappy type of grass. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Yeah. I mean, even if the pasture is totally abused and grazed to dirt, the ditch mm-hmm. is still going to reflect that that pasture is clinging to life in some way. But what the ditches are telling me next to those farm fields is those farm fields are been so sprayed with such a high herbicide load that it's just creeped out under the fence and nothing can grow in that bar ditch. Yeah. No, I like the, the comparison of the ditches and stuff too, because in everything, everything is like management, whether you're, you could not, you could turn the cattle out in spring and pick them up in the fall and say, you don't really manage them, but that's a man you're managing for something in our, our area, I mean, it's long-term, it's selecting for Kentucky bluegrass. I mean, it's, it's lawn, it's essentially like a, a lawn and stuff like that. And people look at our pastures and see them, they're pretty different. And, and honestly, people are like, what, what, you got all those weeds out there, all that, all those, I don't know, we, we plant diversity and people just think it's ridiculous and stuff, but it's exactly, it's, 
it's, it's not a weed it's, <laughs> it's just good cow feed man like exactly yeah i remember several years ago i went to a knrc thing and one of the presentations was how to get cows to eat palmer amaranth hmm. and me being a you know not necessarily a well book educated guy i don't know what palmer amaranth is i know what pigweeds okay. are okay yeah yep yep as it turns out they're kind of the same thing same yeah <laughs> and i think cows love pigweeds like mm -hmm. i turn a cow i turn cows into a pasture of pigweeds and they're not there in 30 minutes like they mm -hmm. go straight for them and just absolutely destroy them but apparently yeah. cows in a or pigweeds in a cornfield is kind of a bad thing so mm -hmm. People were trying to get their cows to figure out how to eat the pigweed. Like, it's easy. They'll want to eat it. Like, because it's usually a really, really high. In yeah. It's a really powerful well, speak, plant. Speaking of bricks, like you mentioned earlier, my wife and I were driving around on the four-wheeler doing bricks readings here and did, you know, some grass over here, some clover over here, some whatever over here. And then we did ragweed. We have a ton of ragweed. That's our biggest problem on our farm. And with the, the organic cropping and ragweed has been, I don't know if you know what that, if you get that in your region at all or not, it, 10 foot tall, massive weeds and stuff. No, we uh, like our here. cattle, no, <laughs> our cattle take after, you know, they're all over the field, nipping the leaves, ripping the leaves off of that ragweed. And that was the highest bricks reading of anything that we tested that day. Grasses, clover, you know, everything. It was the ragweed. And, uh, so now like when people look out and I see what a weedy pasture, everything is just another diverse forage species and stuff, you know, in a cornfield, sure. You're missing out. You're it's it, the ragweed is our worst enemy in the cornfield. And I spent many a years pulling weeds. And that was one of the reasons why I, we wanted to go to crops too, or cattle and pasture. I hated pulling weeds. We in high school, we had my whole football team would uh, go out in the summers and just pull ragweed up and down the rows, hundreds of acres, just one row under your legs, one on each side, yanking ragweeds out and stuff. So uh, never will I have to do that if I just let a cow eat it. And uh, <laughs> so, yeah, another advantage of pasture. Yeah, it's, it's not a weed. It's just good cow feed. Well, my yeah. cows won't eat it. Well, your cows are spoiled rotten and they don't know how to eat. They don't know how to eat. Well, I think. Yeah. And I think part of it is like, they may not eat it, not because it's not good for them or because they won't like it because they've never learned to eat it and stuff. Like, honestly, exactly. when we put the high stock density and it's, I mean, we've done, we're fortunate. That's one advantage of our area, high rainfall and stuff. We can do stock densities in excess of half a million pounds per acre if we wanted to and stuff. I mean, fairly consistently when you force them, when you get high stock density over hundred thousand pounds, 200,000 pounds, they're going to eat whatever is in front day. of them. Yeah, they're going to eat it just because they want something or the neighbor's going to get it and they're not going to get a bite. So once you get them forcing them to eat that ragweed, the next time you bump that population down to 40,000 pounds or less or, you know, whatever, you can give them free range and they'll choose the ragweed because they now see that, oh, yeah, I, I've eaten that. That was actually pretty darn good. So it's kind of neat. So what kind of bricks readings do you, what kind of bricks readings are you getting on your stuff? Yeah. Like, Gosh, see, I, I don't mind sharing better, mine, but, but there's, there's been a couple of times where I've shared mine and been like, well, Hey, what's yours? I'm like, well, that's a proprietary secret. <laughs> really? No, Come on, man. Yeah. And gosh, you know, I feel like dumb because I can't even remember now. I look at it. I, I want to say eight to 10, but I could be totally off. Uh, we can get into the teens. I've seen in the teens 
multiple times. But when I think we were looking and that ragweed, I think was 18. Uh, I'm pretty sure that day, but I can't even remember what the rest of it was. I don't, it sounds like you do it quite regularly. I probably do it once a year. Say that's neat and forget about it. <laughs> I, I, I need to do it more regularly. A couple times a week, if I remember. Really? Yeah. Wow. I'm not, I'm not so doing do you see day. seasonal patterns and different or like different paddocks and things like, do you actually see trends when you're doing it that regularly? I'm not yet. I'm still trying to collect data. Mm-hmm. I mean, sure. Two years of kind of two years of data points isn't really a whole lot. Yeah. And you're actually, you are keeping track and recording them. I have a book. That's awesome. Oh, that's, that's super cool. You got to, uh, I uh, get to get you to share that sometime down the road when you have something to like show for it. Cause I'm sure it'll change as your, your management and stuff changes. I'm excited. That, that's neat. Yeah. And trying to, you know, keep track of everything between, you know, this is the management we've been doing here. This is the management we've been doing mm-hmm. here and track those, you know, and track that trend over a long time and say, you know, okay, this is, this is bricks. This is the bricks representative in this area before we moved him in. And then mm-hmm. this is what it was like, two days post graze, 21 days, 45, things like that. Like mm-hmm. love to have the time to be able to do all that, do all that data collection, but you know, cows got yeah. to move, fence has to be checked and their last be hauled. That's the, that's the tough thing about all, all the things that I would love to record data points on and stuff. Like we picked up a pasture in 2016 and I, before that, said, you know, next pasture we get or next farm we get, I want to go out and do all these different data points and soil tests and water infiltration and penetrometer tests. And just so that when we manage four years down the road, five years down the road, we'll be able to show. And it's like, then we got the pasture, spring came around, we're calving, we're moving cows, we're planting crops, never got to it. And here we are four years later and still just like <laughs> nothing. Just Hey, those samples would have been awful cool. Yeah, it would have been. <laughs> yeah. Like, but I think it's always kind of fun when you go to like a farm conference. I mean, even, even some ranching conferences and they're like, have you ever thought about soil testing? Mm-hmm. Sure have. What's your pitch? Well, this yeah. is what we want to look for. And this is the sample we take. And this is how we process it. And this is how much it costs. Okay, great. How close do you want to sample? Oh, we usually do a 10 acre grid. Okay. 10 <laughs> acre grid. Let me get my calculator out. 10 acre grid on 7,000 acres is uh yeah. Yeah, that's about three Expensive. times what I make on cows in a year. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's the. I think I'm not a cropping expert, but I think those guys do even. Some of them are two acre grids. Is that? It? I'm not sure. I mean, it's it's wild. Some of the people on their testing and how precise with their precision ag and stuff they get with their uh, variable rate to everything and stuff. But I don't know if that pencils as well on uh, or on pasture land or especially on range land down in your country. Yeah. So. Yeah, I the precision ag and making sure we get the right amount of chemical in the exact right spot to the to the inch. I support that. I mean, it's less waste. It's less waste, mm-hmm. it's less chemical use, it's less diesel fuel, and in the end, that's better for all of us. So you know, I mm-hmm. I support that stuff. Yeah, yeah, they'd have to put a pretty good argument together to say why you should why it's how it's going to pay for you. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Uh, yeah. So I'm kind of curious, how long have you guys been been raising bulls for Pharaoh? Uh, I asked Dad, and he can't remember the exact year. It's been, we think, 13, could have been 14 uh, years now we've been doing that. and um, Yeah, that kind of happened. Dad was down there buying a bull because he was raising kind of low-input grass-based genetics and found came across Pharaoh and, um, and uh, 
bought one and got talking and kind of got tied into them that way and stuff. So we've been with them ever since. Yeah. Has it been a pretty good deal for you guys? Yeah. Yeah, no, it has. And it's, I mean, up in my area, I'd say one of the biggest advantages, my dad and grandpa were selling bulls, like I say, for decades, but in my area, almost everything is cropland. And the people who have cows have 10 to 20, 30, maybe 40 cows out on a little chunk of pasture that's too steep or too rocky to run crops on. It's not really, they don't take it seriously and they don't put a whole lot of money into it. And so to be able to market bulls nine months out of the year, what's that? Probably haul feed to them nine months out of the year. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Most are at least, at least five months, six to seven months, probably more realistically for most guys that I know of are feeding somehow. And it's, you know, it's not really a, I, maybe they think it is or something. I would say it's not really a large contributing factor of their profit, you know, the profit profit to their overall operation. And so to sell bulls in this region is uh, there's not that many customers and they don't pay as much as when you get out in cattle country. So it's been advantageous for us just to kind of connect into some of the Western markets, some of the more cattle country markets and stuff that, that we have. So yeah, overall, we've been really happy with it. And I mean, I do believe in in their program, obviously, and stuff we're doing. It's, it's neat to see um, these cattle work in, in, in different environments and stuff. So we've been fortunate to get connected with them and then just to learn what a great group of people willing to think differently and stuff too. But there's a couple of Pharaoh cattle company bulls I've had my eyes on for a while. Oh yeah. yeah the AI I, catalog or? Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure how I feel about that because, you know, trying to AI a bunch of horned cattle is probably not the, <laughs> not the most intelligent operation to undertake. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, mm-hmm. I'm really thinking there's, uh, there's a couple of Mashona bulls that are in a catalog that are very attractive to me mm-hmm. for yeah. mostly the carcass traits and what I think they'll do with the genetics that I'm developing. Yeah. Well, I know you, you've been, I heard you talk on one of your past podcasts and stuff too, about kind of your goal of sounds like trying to do a similar thing of raise these low input, tough cattle that fit your environment. And someday you'd like to get to a point where you're marketing either females or maybe some males and stuff too, right? That's goal years. 100%. Like, yeah. My cows, I don't think anything of mine's probably ever going to see the inside of a sale barn anymore. Um, yeah. Cause I'll admit I sold some there and that was probably the dumbest place I ever could have sold any. Mm-hmm. I take that one. <laughs> um, but from here on out, so from here on out, everything, but everything's closed. Okay. Everything yeah. that's every calf being born this year was bred on the ranch. I can't say that for last year's calf crop or the calf crop before that. Mm-hmm. But this calf crop is the first one hitting the ground. That is 100% me from conception onwards. And that's the product I want to be proud to put my name behind. Sure. Hopefully when, when a couple of them get peeled and put in, and go to freezer camp in 2025, I'll have something worth having. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that's the goal. Um, okay. That's the goal. So when, because you're primarily like a Coriani kind of uh, base, is that right? Corientes, Longhorns, and there were some crosses in there that I bought, but yeah. So for some reason, this seems to be a thing as of late. I've had a bunch of people reaching out, wanting to learn more about that. So, I mean, are you, you, is your herd, do you hope it to be kind of purebred and you sell 
crossbred calves you do you want to have a crossbred like a 50 percent mama cow what's your kind of goal for your your program well we've got in uh we bred in angus last year and we had quite a few opens and you know i didn't have any marketing figured out so i said well, okay well let's add some value back so we, we turned in some bulls for 45 days to try for a fall breed um i know there's at least three or four of them that didn't catch no big deal so We've got some Angus in them. We've got some Flekovich influence Simmental in them, which I was really happy with the carcass size on those bulls. Like they're a full frame smaller than the black ones, but a full for, but they're carrying a full condition higher. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, when you could carry a seven on a frame six versus a versus a six on a six, you know, mm -hmm. I know what I want to have in my cows. So yeah. Uh, as far as breeding up next year, um, got three text messages while we've been doing this interview trying to get that worked out so <laughs> okay okay um i'm not sure if we're going to come back on top with angus or with uh or with something a little different but most likely it'll be angus i mm -hmm. want to get to where i have a, a 50 50 base herd mm -hmm. and yeah. then maybe we can kind of moderate that 50 50 base herd and and start to look at some more i guess terminal type traits but for now i'm more concerned with developing my maternal herd mm maternal sure. herd and the angus the angus and the sim bulls are to try to bulk up or to try to put another frame size on the coriente okay hmm. and hopefully what i keep from the coriente is is their stability their trap you know their foraging ability their mm -hmm. inherent health and pest and disease resistance and just their efficiency is isn't, isn't that one of the biggest things about them they're just like they can make it by on dirt <laughs> almost is that you can just about feed them sticks rocks and dirt and make them drink air and they can get along okay <laughs> because that yeah. great might not be the best but yeah it, you yeah. can push them really really hard yeah and they know how to eat everything in the pasture um mm. the core group that i've got here they're with me strip grazing and and i mean we had those things at 45 to 55 thousand pounds per acre on a daily move if it was in the pasture mm. they had to eat it like there's willow trees that they eat. And some of you yeah. have felt enough of a taste for the willow trees that they'll go seek that out the first couple of hours in a pasture if there's a good mm -hmm. one. Like it's it's weird to see a cow running past green grass and green weeds that you know are super high <laughs> in bricks and super high in nutrients. And she's yeah. gonna eat a dang willow tree. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's yeah, that's the truth. It's something. You just made me think back to that Fred Provenza book and stuff where he talks about all of the other like nutrients and like the uh, secondary to tertiary nutrients and stuff and these other things that they can balance their diet. Cows are so dang smart if you let them, <laughs> if you let them. And that's the one thing that I love about your environment anyway, that it seems like that we don't have much of here is the extent of the diversity. I imagine you've got way more diversity than we have even in our, our pastures, which we try to seed in diversity is nothing like native rangeland. So we'll throw out a couple of terms here, you know, native range gets thrown out a lot. Okay. And I don't want to discourage anybody from using the term native range because it's very mm -hmm. descriptive of, you know, of a forage condition, but there's a new term I'd like to start using and that's old growth grassland. Okay. Okay. And that's grassland that's never been fucked up with a plow. Yeah. Never been yeah. planted, never been farmed. You can take a piece of farm ground, plant natives in it decent management in a few years, it's back to native range, but it will never be sure. old growth grassland again, because 
old yeah. growth grassland is going to be defined by the soil structure that's been developed since the last ice age and in my mind. Yeah. So that being said, the whole place is about 7,000 acres of that. Maybe five or 600 of it was ever farmed zero of okay. it farmed now. So, yeah. and I can tell differences on the, on the places that have been farmed that are planted back to native range. And it was a process. Dad started planting them back in 19, 86 85 86 mm -hmm. right after he took over the ranch because he didn't want to farm like yeah. the farm tractor that he got was a 65 horsepower open cab massey ferguson <laughs> i think the okay. biggest tool that would fit but that he had that was out here that would go behind it was like 10 feet wow <laughs> yeah yeah that yeah. <laughs> no <Nope. laughs> so wow. that all got planted back to native grass yeah. And I remember when I was growing up going down there and there was never really anything impressive growing. It, it wasn't until I moved away and came back from the Navy that there was actually some impressive forage going, impressive grass going down there. Mm -hmm. In the late nineties, he came back and put a Forb mix on it because what he seeded it with in the eighties was just straight grass seed. It didn't have any Forbs in it at all because thinking at the time, why don't we want, we don't want to put weeds out there. Cows don't eat weeds. Cows eat grass. So let's just seed it all to grass. What a, what a, what a short-sighted and uneducated mindset that was. Yeah. So yeah. in the nineties, late nineties, he went back out and, and put some Forbes back on it. And once those Forbes started to get established, I could, I could use the pasture. And there are a couple of years that I used it just perfect and we got the perfect rain right after i used it just hard enough and i had enough rest and well next thing you know we've got five six foot tall big blue stem and indian grass and switchgrass coming back and you mm -hmm. know, healthy little blues and you know all the all the other like the grama grasses and everything yeah. was coming back even the forbs were coming back so yeah that's that's cool we, we've wanted a couple years back, we like looked pretty seriously at planting more natives in our region up here and <clears throat> kind of what we learned and talked to people. And it takes, it sounds like it took you quite a while to get it established and stuff like that. And here it was going to be, people were saying three years up to five years to kind of get it established where we really got to baby it and take some time and kind of be easy on it. And when you're honest, I mean, we could probably get at least $250, if not $300 plus an acre land rent here, when you're setting line, land kind of aside or not really harvesting much off of it for two to five years to try and get something established, it's a pretty expensive, uh, you know, establishment cost. And I don't know if our, they call our stuff improved grasses, these kind of cool season mixes and stuff that we get now. And I don't know if they're really improved or not. They're improved in some part, some ways, maybe the nutritional content not so much the hardiness and the stability of some of the other plants and stuff but but that's kind of the route we've gone just because it seems like it just isn't cost effective for us to try and establish warm season native mixes up here but i remember my dad telling me something and it was a long time ago he said no matter what you do don't ever get involved with the grass of the month club <laughs> Okay. 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 And I took, and I, I've kind of lived by that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
there've been several opportunities, you know, and places that, you know, to plant something like, mm-hmm. no, I don't want that. Mm-hmm. I don't want that. I don't want that improved grass. I don't yeah. want that. Mm-hmm. Cause I think the lessons we've been learning a lot of these grasses that are quote improved. And the one that comes to mind right now is like the current devil of the plains, old world <laughs> blue stem. Yeah. Uh, you know, we bred that in the lab. Like we bred it to be allopathic and allotropic and spread and, and be drought resistant. Problem is we didn't breed it to be palatable for cows. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it yeah. establishes really easy. It's drought tolerant, fire tolerant, chemical tolerant. Like you could spray old world, like the yellow and Caucasian types that I have here. We sprayed some to absolute bare soil for three years in a row. Mm-hmm. Like nuked it to bare soil. Yeah. And guess what's growing there? <laughs> same old stuff. World, huh? Same stuff. Old world blue stem and nothing else. Yeah. Man. So, it's it's almost like we bred a super grass mm-hmm. that doesn't do much for cows. Okay, do cows eat it? Yes. There's not much nutrition in it. Like well, I, something I've oh, never ahead. been able to get a bricks reading from old world blue stem. Really? Period. Huh. Wow. Have you do you, you don't have any other ruminant species like sheep or goats or anything? No. Okay. I wish I did. Yeah. You know, wish I had them about a year ago. Yeah, it, you know, it's a lot of ground to cover, and I'm just one guy. And yeah, you know, I I guess I'll say it because it's on my podcast, and I can get away with it. If you want <laughs> to come out here and run sheep and goats and make me an offer, like I might not even charge you for it. Just bring them out here because I need some goat brush control in places. Like yeah, links yeah. in the show notes. You can get with me. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Now that that's. That's one thing that I talked to Luke Perman not too long ago. I don't know if you've heard, met him or talked to him or anything uh, who brought in custom sheep. Uh, he's on one of my episodes and stuff. It brought in a couple thousand sheep, uh, just custom grazing. And, you know, he says he doesn't think it's affected his cattle, like how much forage he has for cattle. So it's not really affected his stocking, right? He gets a custom fee. They're taking care of weeds that he otherwise would have had to spray. I mean, it's like, what a win, 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 you know, everyone around winning when you start messing with some of these other ruminants and provide opportunity for, you know, a young guy, you know, someone in your community, maybe who wants to get started in something that doesn't have a ranch of their own. It's, it's pretty neat. I'd love to help a young person get started with sheep and build a business. Like, yeah. for that because yeah. underutilized resource you know mm. it's a demand two fastest growing ethnic groups yeah. in the country are are the muslims and the hispanics and they like sheep and goat mm-hmm. yeah 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 someone was telling me and i don't know if there's any truth to this or not but like that it's cheap anyway is the only industry with increasing demand and reducing supply consistently over you know the last however many decades it's continuously increased supply or increased demand reduced supply that's that's good that's a that's a good thing to be a, a you know in that industry <laughs> i can believe that I, I was just sitting here thinking like i kind of almost have this theory and it's not even a half-baked theory did the sheep industry go by the wayside because big meat couldn't figure out a way to industrialize it i mean hmm It's a good question. I guess I always assumed, and I have no idea, uh, but assumed that it was because once people, I've always heard the ranches of the West were paid for with sheep. And then 
nobody ever really liked them necessarily. So once they had the ranch paid for, it's like, well, now we can do what we want. Let's move back to these cows and stuff or something. But I don't know if that's a, a any sort of a factual theory or not. That's just <laughs> what I've kind of wondered. Well, in the last few years, uh, I've been fortunate enough to work with some of the old cowboys that worked out here on this mm -hmm. ranch in the 60s and 70s. And that knew okay, my great great grandfather. Cool. Yeah, and that knew my great great grandfather to put all this crap together. And yeah, tell me that he went broke with cows many times. Yeah. And he always got wow. back. And whenever he'd go broke with cows, he'd get sheep, make a fortune on sheep in like two years, get rid of the sheep, and get back in cows, lose his ass in a couple of years. <laughs> And then go back to sheep. Wow. All <laughs> for the love of the cow, huh? <laughs> Man. Yeah. It's pretty that's, crazy. That's funny. I, yeah. <laughs> I heard it first on Clay on Clay Connery's excellent working cows podcast. He's my pod father. Yes. Uh, yeah. Is he yours? Yeah, I like that. <laughs> He's probably the the egg or the ranching pod father. I mean, yeah, I, I I remember the first time I heard a podcast at a wedding from a buddy of mine and I just started typing in like into the search bar, cows, cattle, ranch things and found working cows podcast. It was one of the first ones I listened to. And I was like, well, here we go. This is, this is it. <laughs> when he so calls cool. me, I yeah. answer the phone. Yes. Pod father. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's good. <clears throat> no, I, uh, yeah. What are you saying for you? For is going off on that. Oh, that's where you heard it, maybe. Yeah, that's where I heard it the first time was that they keep the sheep out back to pay for all of it. The cows around the cows around the horse or cows around the house for the appearances for the neighbors and the family. Yeah. And they keep the horses out by the road for the tourists. And the sheep are out back paying. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's probably, you know, I'd be it's interesting because I've heard that from more than one place this value of sheep and stuff you know i i've wanted to get more sheep guests on and i cannot find just about anybody who's got them or has experience with them or has a story to tell about their grandfather building a ranch with sheep there's just not many people out there who actually do it so yet it sounds like every ranch was built with them so well hey let, let's put the call out if you know if you can relate yeah. a story about building a ranch paying for ranches with sheep like that you've heard from your grandfather's or you're still part of an operation, or you have something to say about that, reach out to me, reach out to Jared, reach out to Jared over on Herd Quitter. Yes. Tell those stories. I've had a lot mm -hmm. of requests for sheep episodes, but trying to find sheep producers, guys, you got to reach out to us. We'd love to give you a platform to tell your stories. Yeah. Yeah. That's good call. Yep. Thank you. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, for sure. So what did inspire you to get into podcasting? <laughs> well, it was, it was clay and the working cows podcast. I mean, that was a big part of it. I had always wanted to. Um, and, and then I was like, well, if I can find someone that does it, I'll just listen. I don't really need to do a podcast. I just want to hear these things and learn. So I found clay's podcast and was like, this is great. You know, went several years and then I took this job with SFA and, uh, they have a podcast that is, we talk to a lot of local farmers here in Minnesota that I do quite a few of the interviews on that one for them and stuff. And we talk with everything from 
vegetable farmers to dairy farm to all sorts of stuff and that just got me experience in actually doing any sort of a conversation like this I, I had no idea if I could maintain any sort of a conversation I didn't I had no clue how I would do it that so after I had a few under my belt with that I was like well, this is fun and all, but I really want to talk to cattlemen and more, you know, all over the country. And so I had a little bit of experience. I was confident enough to get started and, uh, and I always wanted to do it. And so, yeah, at that point, I just went ahead and did it. And yeah, I, uh, I, I don't remember how I got started. I talked with Kit Farrell and stuff to see if he had some people. Like, I wanted to get him on it and talk to him a little bit to see if he wanted to participate in it somehow. And he was open to that. And so, yeah, and we just started going. And it's been not quite a year now, right around a year. I, I don't remember when the first episode was released, right around a year ago now. So uh, we started at the same time. Like, I know. Weeks of each other. Yeah. Yeah. I remember Clay saying, uh, saying on his podcast I, I had him come on as one of my first and he said you know, that he had got two new ones starting i was like well i know i'm one of them who's the other guy <laughs> you know? the one that started right when we did well, it was you well it was me and then you as he, he had said unless there was somebody else yeah yeah and then not too long after that the ranch or the, the roots and ruminants came out too they do a good one as well yeah yeah i i don't I'll admit, I don't catch too many ag podcasts these days because I do one and I don't always want my content to be derivative. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I have, I have listened a couple of years. I listen a bunch of clays. Um, but a lot of times it's just nice to put on Joe Rogan and, you know, have a three hour show, <laughs> have a three yeah. hour show to zone out to. Yeah, no, I, I, I enjoy his as well. And it's, yeah, that was something where I was like, how do I want to structure this? And it was funny because when I first started, I was 30 minutes was fine, you know, 30 to 40 minutes I could get and stuff, but it felt more like I was working for it. But as you start going into it, these conversations, you, you throw away the questions and the agenda and just let a conversation happen. You yeah. can talk for however long, you know, I mean, however long you got time for That's, that's never been the issue. <laughs> I've got a couple bullet points. And if I run out of that, exactly. I've got a cheat sheet posted on the wall. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. It, it's, it's great. And I don't know, Joe Rogan is a pro at it. He's got his three hour long every time and stuff and seems to make it seem so effortless. And I never understood how he can do that. But once you start, you get the right people having a conversation, there's endless content. I mean, you can talk for a long time. That's, that's rarely the issue. It's yeah. Have you been lucky enough to get, get the chance to do one of these face-to-face -face yet? No, I, well, with my, I did one with my dad where I talked to him about our history. Uh, that was the only one I've done in person. I, I'm almost nervous too, because I told dad, if we do another one, he's going to do it from his computer in his house. Cause I don't have the tech or the know-how to do it in person. And I didn't like having one audio file. So yeah. Okay. I, I can understand that. I, I actually, I'm really fortunate. I have a friend that has a, prof like a professional quality podcast oh, studio okay. that yep. lets me use. It only takes, nice. it's like 35 40 minutes to get there sure and he has yeah. a restaurant so if we're going to schedule a if we're <laughs> schedule an interview in his studio um i always make sure i take my guest out to have a nice meal at yeah. his lovely restaurant either before awesome. or after yeah um, but he's got some he's got like the same roadcaster pro that i do but he's got different microphones so i just got to take a memory card pop my yeah. settings in man we sit down do the thing you know, it's a big table with four mics and, you know, you kind of mm. get them a little bit out of the way. You just kick back and have a great conversation. 
I'm telling you, like we're sitting here doing this and I keep glancing at the clock just to see where we're at mm-hmm. doing one in the studio. Like I look over and it's like, man, we've been doing this forever. I look over and it's been going for six minutes. Like, oh, <laughs> shit, is this ever going to get going? I look over again. It's like 30. I'm like, okay, that's fine. All right. We're yeah. on a roll here. Yeah. And then like 10 minutes later, I'm like, all right, we've had a good conversation. You know, let's see where we're at. And I look over and it's like two Oh one. I'm like, Oh, <laughs> we got an yeah. episode boys. Yeah. 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 No, that's, it's always, it's weird. Even after 55 or whatever, every time I'm still a little nervous beforehand, like, am I gonna, or is this gonna go okay? Is this, is this going to be the one where I should have prepared for, you know, but it, yeah, after 10, 20, 30 minutes in, they just keep rolling. So, but I need to get your tips on that, that in-person, uh, the, the tech, cause that is, that's my biggest fear. Why I haven't really done it is I, and actually I should do it before I go to the, you can get your bell ready ranching for profit school, um, in April, there we go <laughs> before I go to the ranching for profit school in April, uh, so that I can, uh, see if I find somebody with neat stories there and, and actually talk to them in person is what I would love to do, but I have no clue how to do it right now. So. Yeah, maybe we can get together, like, you know, shoot me a text or give me a call. We could kind of, you know, get together offline so I can see what, what equipment you're dealing with. And yeah, 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 that'd be great there. So uh, where is that ranching for profit school? Oklahoma city. Yeah. John Locke will be your instructor. Yeah. Yeah. I was supposed to go to Minot with my dad here a couple of weeks ago, but I ended up getting sick. So I had to stay home and he went off and uh, had all the brain uh brain numbing fun i guess of ranching for profit well you're still going to get john Locke as an instructor yes he was yep. he was scheduled for minot as well mm-hmm. yeah somebody asked what he did to deserve minot in february and the answer was <laughs> phoenix in january yeah <laughs> yeah that's that's probably fair punishment yeah <laughs> for those that don't know uh John was on podcast previously can't remember the episode off the top of my head Jamie's not here to look it up but John is from southwest of Houston, Texas. John does not like the cold. The opposite of North Dakota. Yes. Yeah. John is not a man that is made to enjoy cold weather. And he will tell you that himself. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I can't blame a person. But at the same time, I also have zero desire to be in South Texas in the summer. So <laughs> I would probably take Minnesota winter over that for sure. Or that, but for sure anywhere south east with the humidity i do not know how they can do it and i uh i'm pretty sure i would have a heart attack year one so <laughs> drink a lot of water i'm told <laughs> yeah 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 for sure <laughs> for sure man uh, uh, so i want to hear about a wreck tell me about a wreck you've had and what did it teach you on our on our farm yeah hmm. farm ranch cow well, okay so yeah the closest thing I can think of and I feel bad because it happened on another person's farm <laughs> uh with our cattle and stuff is the the so we we wanted to extend our grazing season right so we we were having really expensive winter feed costs and so we started planting sorghum sedan grass on our farm and doing a couple years of trials with that to see what we could do and we were getting uh when we planted a cool season cover crop mix in the spring hated off and then graze, and then planted sorghum sedan grass mix and grazed that in the fall and winter, we, uh, we were getting 180 plus cow days per acre that we were able to harvest off of that. And when we divided out our cost per cow day, it was well below, well below what our cost per cow day of feeding hay was. And we 
did this and it went quite well um, for several years. And so then we, we had this farmer that we, we still graze stocks on this place every year. Great friend and really uh, progressive crop farmer, uh, no-till cover crops doing fantastic stuff on really heavy wet ground. Um, and he wanted to get livestock integration on this farm. And uh, we wanted to kind of access more acres potentially to raise crops. And so we thought here might be a mutually beneficial way that we can pay him to raise a cool season mix, make hay on it, put a sorghum sedan grass mix in and graze that in the winter. And so we went over to his place with our cattle in October, grazed corn stalks on it as long as we could uh, graze corn stalks. And then with the plan being to go to the sorghum sedan grass after the corn stalks, when the snow was too thick or deep for the, the, uh, the, the corn stalks. Well, by the time we got to the sorghum sedan, the snow, it got really, it, that, that sorghum caught a lot of snow. And it seemed like by the time we got off the corn stalks, cause it was too hard on the cattle, the, the sorghum sedan was buried in snow and ice and they got 30 cow days per acre off of that. And so we felt pretty bad because he had all the costs of what would have produced 180 plus cow days per acre, but he had to divide it across we paid him on a per head per day basis kind of a thing. And we ended up, you know, trying to make it work, but he kind of lost a lot of production out of that because it was all buried in snow and ice. And, um, we, if, if we had gotten the full 180 to 200 counties, it would have been a really good setup for him where he got paid a fair price. We got a significantly reduced cost for our winter feed costs. Um, we don't have to run the sorghum on our own acres so we could increase our pasture acres, run more cows, kind of increase turnover. It was going to be, we were really excited about the mutual benefit between it all and stuff, but it ended up being a total flop with that sorghum when we were grazing it in the middle of February and it was buried in snow and ice and we barely got anything off of it. Yeah, that's probably the biggest one I can think of. <laughs> so if somebody was sitting in, uh, I don't know, let's just pick a town, LA, in a filing cabinet for humans, what would be some advice <laughs> that you could uh, throw their way if they wanted to do what we're doing? What's the, What would be the best mm. advice you wish you had before you started in your ag career? Man, well, I... To that point, I was fortunate to have my dad who'd been doing this for years. So I started off a lot better off than a lot of folks. I was fortunate to have that. But uh, as far as advice to beginners with cattle production specifically is, I mean, especially if you're getting started, don't jump in with all the things you think you need. I mean, how many people get started buying a tractor, buying a hay rack and hay equipment and all the stuff you need to, to feed, you think you need to feed cattle and stuff. I mean, that's a one advantage of a grazing based system is that you can get into it with little or no overhead. I mean, you can get into it without the equipment, uh, you know, so don't try and be the crop farmer. That, that's the reason why a lot of people start off with grazing enterprises as, as opposed to cropping up here is because they can't afford to get all the cropping equipment. So don't try and play their game. Just let the animals do their own work. And then, uh, and then call ruthlessly. Uh, if you can, uh, yeah, I don't want to say that necessarily entirely as like a blanket statement. You should pull out all the stops and call ruthlessly because that could be financially destructive for a lot of people too. So, you know, you got to work with what you got and try and, you know, kind of make it work, but work towards reducing inputs, pulling out the crutches, selecting the animals that work. And I just had a fantastic conversation last two weeks ago now with Jason Sargo, who talked about kind of a philosophy. We were trying to kind of come up with like, what are the principles, like the principles of soil health they talk about? What are the principles of pro profitable cattle production and stuff? And he said, like one of the ones for cows would be to, uh, 
call, you know, improve genetics, not from buying better bulls, but from calling out the worst and, you know, let the environment select. And I was like, that's a really kind of revolutionary thought, uh, not revolutionary. I shouldn't say that, but very, a very insightful thought, you know, I mean, improve your herd genetics, not through selecting in better genetics, but getting rid of the worst ones. And your herd in time will just become this group of cattle that fit beautifully in your environment. And that's totally backwards from everything we read in the publications <laughs> and the mainstream podcast, which is, yeah, you can improve your profitability with this bull or, you know, this yeah. breed is proven profit at this, or mm -hmm. use this, use this app to track your feed and track your cost and you'll make more money <laughs> or use this implant to improve this. Like, yeah. Why don't we just take out the crap out of a herd that ain't working that's holding the rest of them down? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I hear it all the time of just like, well, gosh, you got, so I, I talked about a really good breed back on our cows in 93 to 95% for several years. The heifers ain't so pretty. <laughs> the heifers, the yearling heifers is 70 to 75, you know, percent and maybe 80% on a good year. And people are saying you could get 90, 95% you know, if you did this or you added this or you supplemented with that, and it's like, I would much rather have an open heifer than an open four-year-old or five-year-old. You know, I mean, when we're calling them out at the beginning, we're, we're setting up our herd so much better at the start for long-term, you know, stability because we, we've weeded out the ones that can't do it early on. And I'm okay with that too. Cause the other, I mean, we, my wife and I direct market meat, so we just grass finish them and sell them for more than we could as you know that we get good money grass market or grass finishing beef too so i mean you can get a premium farm but it's a lot harder to do that with an open five-year-old then you got a sale barn cow that's worth you know a fraction of what she could be um so those are the ones I you guess put in I the would, grinder and sell for five bucks as burger and that's what the, that's the thing we want to look for is wholesale burger markets or uh beef stick markets something we can capture out of our cows that's what we would like to do um, the other thing that we're considering after going to Doug Ferguson's sell by marketing school, you know, and Wally Olson talks about it a lot too, is, you know, that cows don't appreciate in a straight line. They drop off, you know, year four or five. So keeping a younger herd, selling them earlier, we don't have much fallout that early. I mean, after we, we get the hot, heavy fallout early, we don't have that much after there. So we don't really have that many cows to, uh, to sell at a sales barn. So it, it's not that much of a hit. Um, and usually, if we're calling at that point, we're calling out ones that are bred that not opens. Um, but there's always a few. And so far we've just gone to the sales barn with them, but, um, I would like to, we've been looking at beef sticks as, as kind of our call cow market. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you. I'm on that level. It's just trying to find that pipeline and trying to get that pipeline built. It's, it's not easy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. You hear about the pros and I, there's a lot of people out there who've done an amazing job. And I, when I first started the podcast, I had a guest from Georgia and somebody reached out and said, I love this. You got somebody from the Southeast who's not Will Harris. <laughs> well, just this morning I released uh, Will Harris <laughs> and uh, cause I've wanted to talk to him forever, but that person, I, I think I reached, talked to him or something. And they said, you know, at least if you're going to talk to Will Harris, talk more about the struggles like early on, you know, it doesn't really do anybody any good to hear of this guy doing 20 million in sales and all how great this is and how fantastic that is and stuff, you know, hear about how he did it. And so that we tried to talk a lot early on about what were the actual challenges and how did you overcome them? Cause it's, it's not easy. I mean, it sounds great. Just go sell everything direct. But uh, when you get 
to doing it, you realize the time commitment and the infrastructure requirements and everything just to, to move a head of beef to, to a consumer is not cheap or, or easy. And labor requirements. Yeah. It's a lot easier to grow them than it is to sell them. And, yeah. Oh gosh. I can't remember. I, I listened to so much stuff, but we we're talking, I was listening to one about, you know, that beef producers have just willingly given up all of our marketing power. And it's true. We let, you know, they sold the checkoff to all the producers back in the eighties. I didn't vote on it. Mm-hmm. You didn't vote on it, <laughs> but we're still paying it. Yeah. They sold us the checkoff as saying, guys, we know you don't have time to market your stuff. Let us do that for you. <laughs> Good stuff, yeah. right? And at yeah. the time, I'm sure it was a great thing. And I'm sure that it worked well for a while. But history has proved that ever since the checkoff has been uh, put into place, the cattleman share of the beef dollar has done nothing but go down. Yeah. Well, I think it's you that maybe said it or one of your guests. I, 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 this conversation is one that I, I hear mostly, I feel like, from your, your, your podcast. But is uh, how, many, nobody, how many cattlemen are actually selling beef? I mean, we're not, we're not selling beef. We're selling cattle. And yet the, the checkoff is selling, they're marketing beef. They're not 100%. marketing our cattle. And so we're paying them to market the Packers product. <laughs> we're not paying ours. them for their own advertising. Like yeah. we're giving them their advertising budget. Mm-hmm. Like when was the last time you saw Tyson brand advertising one of their protein products? They don't have to because we pay to advertise it for them through the checkoff. Yeah. We don't yeah. have Tyson, Cargill, JBS, Marfrig, Smithfield. They don't have to do anything to tell us how good the meat is. They don't have to do, they don't have to do any marketing because mm-hmm. we yeah. pay to, we pay a quote independent third party to do that. Yeah. And 100% I'm in the cattle business. I want to be in the beef business but I don't want to sell cattle to somebody that's in the beef business because mm-hmm. let's face it, no matter what we take to the barn, they're paying us hamburger price. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're paying us hamburger price and selling it for steak. <laughs> like yeah. bottom line. And yeah. it, it wraps back around to that. There's such that they base these grids and formulas on the quote cash trade. Well, the overall volume of cash trade is so small and they control it anyway that they're basically continuing to manipulate the price further and further down on all these grid and formula contracts and importing, quote, lean trim from Brazil. Like, bullshit. We import more than we export. Yeah. It, well, it's interesting because I, I kind of, it's a challenge, no doubt. But you and I talk to people all over the country who are making a profitable business out of cattle and on grass. And so it's not in the commodity markets too. And so it's no doubt is there challenges. No doubt is that maybe making things difficult and stuff too. But I like, I think there's definitely ways that people can, can work with it, at least in, in the time. And that's kind of what I'm, we're trying to do is do things differently. I mean, yeah, you maybe can't compete with the guys with at the, you can't compete with guys uh, in the kind of more large scale 
feedlot type systems. Do, you, you maybe can't get into this business and compete with them and stuff, but you don't need to. I mean, you can go the more low input route and be profitable from cow one and then scale a profitable enterprise. And that's, I don't know, it's, it's interesting. I don't, I like, I like Doug Ferguson when I went to his class, spent like two hours talking to us about kind of this idea of our, our mindset and not being the victim and that we can choose, we can be profitable in this industry if we do things differently. And I do believe that, um, but no doubt are there challenges too. So yeah. it also needs to be said that there's, I don't think that a person needs to feel guilty about taking advantage of the system, the way it exists. Mm-hmm. But on yeah. the other side of that coin is as long as there's, you know, desire to seek knowledge to do better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of guys that I know that are in the cattle business that just can't take their entire cattle business and shift it to a beef business, you know, thousand head operations. It doesn't make sense for somebody to do that. And I'll admit that, like, if you're that guy, it doesn't make sense for you to take everything you've been doing and those really high quality cattle that are in high demand at the feedlot at the sale barn. It doesn't make sense to try to shift all that demand over, over to direct sell, take a percentage of it, select a couple of animals out of that, retain them and put those, put your name on those mm-hmm. and start building your brand instead of giving away the best of yourself and the best of your genetics for Tyson to put their label on. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, it, and I like, I don't know when this will be released, but last week, I think you released the one with George Walker and they've done an amazing job of marketing. They're doing so good with direct marketing and building out their brand and stuff too. But he also was talking about their, like the challenges that come with it. And I have a lot of people who come to me more with my job with SFA and asking how can we, you know, we want to do this direct marketing. It sounds fantastic and stuff too. Maybe coming in a little ambitious and, and, and there's some real challenges to that as well, but the reward is there, but uh, yeah, there's some real reward and and opportunity and long-term the guys who have their own market, I feel like are, are going to be, I mean, you just have this whole level of control that no one else will ever be able to have long-term if you can control your market from beginning to end, especially the guys who are big enough to have their own processing line and stuff too. That's where things kind of get exciting. And I liked with Will Harris, where he talked about that 100% of the consumer dollar comes to him in Bluffton, Georgia. And he has a lot of expenses that go out with that, that go to the pack to the, all the employees, the 180 employees he works to all the stuff, but hundred percent of that dollar, rather than going to the 50,000 head feedlot in Nebraska or the pack or wherever stays in Bluffton, Georgia, in his community. How cool is that? I mean, when you start building, you can build communities with cattle. I mean, that's where things get exciting. I, I love that. Cows build towns. And that's yeah. a direct Steve Stratford quote. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's a hill that I'll die on shoulder to shoulder with them. Cows build towns. Will Harris has, Will Harris has a model. And I'm not saying that it's, 100% correct or will work everywhere, but it is a mm-hmm. good model. It is a good framework for people to look at and say, if he can do that in Bluffton, Georgia, I can do something similar in Yankton, South Dakota or Phoenix, yeah. Arizona or Seattle, Washington, mm-hmm. like 80% of it's going to be common. 80% of it's going to be replicatable and it'll work somewhere else. It's just finding that 20% that you need to get there 
to just make it sing. Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. And there's totally potential. There's, I don't know. Uh, there, we just did a search within 20 miles of the center where we have a freezer space in the twin cities, uh, where we market our meat out of. And we just kind of looked 20 miles around Edina and there's like 3 million people or something in the twin cities. And it's like, why am I trying to, I mean, there's so many people who want my product within an hour from me. I mean, this opportunity is great. And we hear from so many customers, oh, we've been looking for someone like you for so long. And it's like, they're out there. They are everywhere. Just got to get in front of them somehow. And that's the challenge. <laughs> Figuring out how to connect the story that we want to tell mm -hmm. to the consumer that wants to hear it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, That has been a challenge. Oh, like I said, I, I, I got out of the Navy in 06 and came back and, you know, it was really around 07, 08. I started to kind of really get my head around some of these things. You know, if you want to sell grass fed, you know, trying to sell grass fed 10 years ago was an uphill battle. <laughs> I mean, if you're trying to sell grass fed beef, everybody's laughing at you and nobody's listening. Now people are at least listening mm -hmm. and there's less people yeah. that want to fight you on it. And there's more people seeking you out. Yeah. And I don't know where I was going with that. I, totally. <laughs> I don't know either, but it's, it's, it is interesting. Like talking to these guys like Will Harris and seven sons in Indiana and stuff. They were the early ones on in like the early two thousands when no one else was doing it. The technology wasn't out there, but they also had a wide open market. So I kind of wonder, I don't know where I'd rather be. Would I rather be here where there's an awareness of the benefits of grass fed, you know, the benefits of what we do. And there's the tools like, you know, all the tools there are for marketing and like the, all this, or would I rather be back there where there was no market, no tools, but no competition? <laughs> That's uh, no, yeah, there's advantages to each, I guess. So. I don't think we missed it. I think it's still coming. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know, is there a stat out there? I've wondered, is there a stat that says actually how, what percent of beef is purchased direct? I've never seen one, oh. but I wondered. No, I don't, I don't know. And I, well, how would you track that? I'd be interested to see. I have no idea. <laughs> I don't <laughs> even for me to figure out. That's for. <laughs> I don't even believe the official USDA harvest statistics. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, they come. They, you know, they come from the big packing plants. I don't mm -hmm. even believe that bullshit. Yeah, um, but that would be something very interesting, very interesting to know. But I don't think yeah. that. You know what? What kind of data data collection would that require? You know. Mm -hmm. And I'd be curious, and it, it, probably the best way to do it, I suppose, would be to go to like the, the graze carts, the barn doors, the, you know, the companies that are actually like the inter, they probably have the numbers, but maybe that's illegal to share that data. I don't know. But I'd be curious if we were, say, 1%, let's say 1% of the whole population or the, the meat is direct marketed or something like that. I'd be curious then too, how COVID affected that, you know, if it, it, it went, went to up. 2%, it would for sure went up to go 2%. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> It, and it's like, it could have totally doubled it, but it's still such this minor fraction. You know, if we could have doubled the direct marketing, you know, of the, the country went from 1% to 2% maybe, but it's still this tiny fraction of the whole industry. Like there's so much potential in this direct marketing yet. And well, everybody who buys way. beef or go ahead. Let's look at it this way. Okay. So once an idea takes hold in 3% of the population, it's basically unstoppable. Mm-hmm. So if we get 3% of the population on direct marketing grass-fed beef, 
that's unstoppable momentum and that movement and that, that demographic will do nothing but continue to grow. Yeah. And I would say even, what if it's not even just grass fed beef? Like if we want to just support local communities, I mean, if it's every, if every kind of beef, it can be grain fed beef, grass fed, all natural, whatever. But if they, if they supported local, you can have the same impact on communities that, that Will Harris is having without, you know, needing the grass. I mean, you can still get the same quality product at a reasonable price too. I mean, the people selling direct market or grain fed beef, I don't know, one, $2 more per pound or something like that. And, and the average consumer eats 44 pounds of beef a year. So, I mean, you're talking I'll pay 100 pounds more per pound. Yeah. From one of my friends that produces high quality beef, since I don't yeah. have my pipeline built yet, I will happily pay whatever they ask. And it's usually 50% over the grocery store. But you end up okay. with more food in the pan after you cook it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, know, you but end up like, with I mean, more nutrition yeah, in the pan yeah, after you true. cook it. Yeah. And if, and if you, you do that, say it's four bucks a pound more, and, st- and the average person needs 50 pounds per year or whatever, you're talking $200 or, yeah, am I right on that? Yeah, that seems like not very much. <laughs> $200 more in meat costs and in beef costs. For oh, a person, I can't so if your family of four, because I need a new pair of Jordans or I need the latest iPhone. My Netflix—that's my Netflix or my monthly, or my daily Starbucks and stuff. I mean, it's like the 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 investment cost we're asking the consumer to make is relatively small, but the impact is massive. The potential impact. It's, and it's it would be just a few small investments every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would pay dividends far down the line in human health. I mean, we wouldn't have these late, we wouldn't have as many late onset cases of diabetes if we got rid of carbs and seed oils out of our diet. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe we wouldn't have some of these health problems if we weren't eating a lot of this, you know, <clears throat> I'm going to say you're going to disagree with me and that's fine, but a lot of grain-fed cattle that have been fed a lot of GMO grains that have been sprayed with a lot of herbicide and pesticides. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm sure that I will get flamed for for saying that there's some kind of herbicide and pesticide residue that makes it in that grain that builds up in that cow. Mm-hmm. Like it's there. It might not be a detectable quantity. And just because science says, oh, well, that can't happen. I point to the neonicotinoids. Mm-hmm. Like they have proven that neonicotinoids will kill honeybees and wasps in quantities so small we can't even measure them. Mm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and yeah, I, I'm not going to disagree with you. I mean, we raise grass hush beef. We believe in the benefits of that and stuff too. And, and but you know, yeah, it's, it's interesting if we could shift more that way, that would be incredible. And, and I, Joel Solitson has talked about, I've heard people talk about and stuff too, that we have the capacity to raise all of the beef that we raise right now on grass. And Maybe we do, maybe we don't. I don't know. There needs to be some for both. And there's always going to be a market for grain finished beef out of, you know, afford, they need the, the cheapness and, and the other people who just prefer that meat and stuff. But I like, I love the idea of this more local and stuff too. And it's going to cost more, but people always say that they're, they're against that cost. And I, I really question whether the idea of cheap food is really doing anybody any favors okay, let's pay the extra cost to the rancher that's taking care of his land, that's managing it regeneratively, that keeps 
that keeps the soil covered and has a diverse mix of species in his pastures that has clean, clear streams running off the ranch and ponds that you can see the bottom of that are full of fish. Okay. Mm -hmm. Let's not give that guy a premium because that's too much. Let's go to the meat case at Walmart and buy the cheapest fucking thing we can. Yeah. That's, that's just responsible for all manner of environmental destruction. And guys, please don't think I'm attaching the production beef system, but let's be honest. There's some problems. Like there's some serious problems when you look at the production KFO model from the 30,000 foot view, you know, are, are cows to blame for rainforest destruction in Brazil? Not directly, but yeah, they're clearing rainforest to grow corn and soybeans to feed cows and fucking feedlots in Brazil so they can ship them up here. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. is our demand for animal agriculture feeding rainforest destruction in a roundabout way? Yes, but the average cattleman that I'm near or you're near would argue that till they're blue in the face. Cows don't cause climate destruction. We're not cutting, <laughs> nobody's cutting down the rainforest to grow cows. And they're right. They're yeah. just cutting it down to grow cow feed because the cow is <laughs> staying in a CAFO. I mean, yeah. it, and it honestly, that's not much different. You know, yeah. if we're going to cut down a rainforest to do something for cows, let's put cows on it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, it's interesting. <laughs> it's a conversation we could talk to, you know, like another two hours. Uh, easy. I mean, yeah. there's so much you could get into with this. We have been going two hours. And, Something yeah. that I've heard said, and I don't repeat it very often, is, and I wish I could remember who said it, but east of the Mississippi can raise 100% of the cattle that we need in this country. There's enough grazing land and enough rainfall that we don't even need to be west of the Mississippi with cows. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that's true. And, and, and I suppose what people say then would be well all of that ground would be the grain production ground uh and and so where would all the stuff that grain production is going to where would that what would we do with that but 40 30 35 percent of that or so goes to livestock feed although that that's also including pork and poultry but another 35 40 percent of that goes to ethanol production you know i mean and is that really doing us any favors either and stuff i mean yeah that's it's it Oh, ethanol is a two-hour podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Not with me. I don't know enough about that. But uh, but I, on ethanol, I have no idea. I, I saw on Twitter, and I I always get a kick out of it on Twitter, and I don't really care one way or another or something myself. But people who are just one hundred percent against um, solar solar arrays, uh, and they were saying how this is you know, what a waste. This is all this productive ground will never be back in corn or something like that. And I was just doing some Google searching and uh, I have probably doing I'm, a better benefit a to the world with solar panels on it than it was with corn. Yeah. Well, I was just looking at purely from a, a car, like how many miles and I, I looked, how many miles can you get out of a, an acre of solar electricity harvested versus an acre of corn used for ethanol? And, uh, and uh, I don't remember the number. It was ridiculously wildly more with solar so you can harvest so many more miles in a car in an automobile with with that and then they would say well what about all the byproducts you can get you know feed out of grain well it's like you can graze under solar panels too so it's still feed it's also miles and energy and i was just like 
I don't know. I'm, I'm not, I'm very non-confrontational. So, and I'm probably going to get something back from all this and stuff too now, but uh, so I didn't respond on that Twitter, but I was, and, and maybe the sources I saw were, were wildly off too. But I mean, if you can yeah, increase more of the, the fuel, essentially, I mean, why are we raising all this corn to go into fuel? It's a pretty inefficient system in itself. And then, and then, uh, and then we can also use it for agricultural purposes and grazing and uh, and actually get paid to graze. A lot of these solar arrays will pay a, like a, a vegetation management fee to somebody to graze. I mean, this is, and the the landowner. Hopefully, it's you know, you know, somebody's rural and not some you know city person buying up land across the country. But the landowner gets a pretty pretty penny as well for this. I mean, for the these rent payments. So it can be a win win, and that's a lot of money coming into that local community. So. I don't know. There's, there's a lot of different ways to do things. If people are willing to think a little differently and, and challenge their own paradigms and be willing to say, not, not that I need to change tomorrow, but is what I'm doing the best thing that we could do in this situation? I don't know. Yeah. I like it. I like it. Yeah. Hmm. We're bumping on that two hour mark, bud. Yeah. Well, We'll go another two hours on my podcast with you then. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. We'll have to do that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think I said, I'm, I might regret saying this, but I'm going to try to have this one out. I think on the 14th of March. Okay. Cool. Cool. So yeah. if you just heard that on the podcast and it came out on a different day, make sure you send me some hate mail and let me know. I was going to say, and if I'm no longer on Twitter, because somebody, I don't know, somebody heard me in my crop country here, go after corn production, I might be in trouble too. So I've got your phone number now. Don't be afraid to get kicked off Twitter. Oh, good. (laughs) (laughs) Man, no, good. I I appreciate it. That was, that was fun. You're, you're, you're good at keeping conversation going too. This was this two hours flew by. Thanks, Brian. Hey, I'm just faking it till I make it. Where can we find you on social media? How can people get a hold of you? Where can they find your your excellent herd quitter podcast? Yeah. So Jared Lumen on Facebook and Instagram, Herd Quitter Podcast, Facebook, Instagram. Um yeah, that's where you can find me. I'm not too active on either. I respond to messages, but I don't post too much. So that's 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 where you can find me. Yeah, thanks. What's your podcast host platform? Anchor. You're on Anchor too? Okay, sweet. I'll find an I'll put the anchor link to your show. Yeah. 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 And it's also herdquitterpodcast.com. Yep. Sorry. Should mention that as well. You can find it and listen to it pretty much on any, uh, any, uh, wherever you listen to podcasts, I guess. So. Yeah. I'm, I'm still learning how to do all that self-promotion. I'm still pretty rough at it too. It's, it's okay. <laughs> we'll get better. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully. <laughs> well, it, it's been a, uh, man, it's been an awesome afternoon hanging out with you, Jared. I'm really looking yeah. forward to meeting back up with you in a couple of weeks and, uh, and yeah. your show and continuing this great conversation. Yeah, for sure. Me too. I, I want to, like I said earlier, there's a million questions I got for you that we'll have to, we'll have to do that on mine. So you can be in the hot seat next time. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. So how do you sign off on your shows? Oh man, <laughs> pretty much the same. I just say, well, thanks so much. Yep. He says, thanks. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, thanks so much for sticking <laughs> yeah. around. We'll see you next week. Yeah. <laughs> Gosh. Yeah. <laughs>